the guy uh, Gavin Rosedahl, who I think plays like the the lead singer of a band called Bush. I've uh, never... He doesn't play him. He's actually him. In <laughs> oh real yeah, life. yeah, whatever. He's he's that guy. Yeah, he plays the but lead singer his, of a band. His welcome into the sponsor products with myself, Walter Abrams. That's a really not that good of a movie, even though I really like it because it's about gambling and it has Al Pacino in it. It's I don't know why he sounded like Woody Allen, but <laughs> besides the fact that I could not stand Jacob Tremblay, even though he seems like a very nice young lad, uh... <laughs> he's a very nice young lad, but he can go eat shit. <laughs> I really enjoyed Don Rinkles as Billy Sherbert. Don, Don Rickles? Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Wow, yeah. You ageist piece of shit. My property. I'll do what I want to do with my after, property. After I'm done with this fish, we're serving white cake. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we close out our February favorite series by reviewing my favorite film, 1995's Casino. I gotta listen to people because of your fucking shit, you motherfucker, you! If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there, everybody, and welcome in to episode 52 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Toussaint Egan and Nick Cheney. Yep. And apparently they're not here. Great. <laughs> I'm sorry. Good. Did you did you say my name? I did. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm having a Ben Carson moment here. <laughs> oh shit! That was great. God damn! I love that the the thing that was, the meme that was made or it's it's not a meme, I guess, but whatever. That... Where he just stands in the hallway like yeah. a fucking Sith Lord. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually anything that's in, involved with. That's done well that makes fun of him, yeah. and it's done well is I'm usually a fan of. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Very Agreed. good. Agreed. So on this uh, week's episode, we are talking about uh, Casino, the 1995, let's just call it a classic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's call it a classic. <laughs> well, I would. I don't know if anybody, anybody, well, I know other people would, but I don't know if you guys would. Yeah. Uh, however, that, that film directed by Martin and Nick just pulled something out of his mouth, so that was awesome. It's the sacrifices I have to make for podcasting. <laughs> Got to keep it clean and vacant. <laughs> God damn, dude! All right, all right. Off to a fucking raging start here yep. on this episode of Film Tag, uh, as per usual. Uh, but before we get to our review of the '95 uh, film Casino. Let's have a week in review and start off by talking about a film that we all saw together. Hey. Just said on the Deadpool episode that we never see movies together and we just saw another one we together. We rectified that. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I don't think Toussaint's seen all of them, but this film uh, closed out myself and Nick's uh, viewings of all of the Best Picture nominated Oscar films this year. Because we saw the film Room, which is directed by Lenny Abramson. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, who directed Frank from a couple years ago, the uh, film with Michael Fassbender where he wears a oh. mascot head around and 
I have been, ever since the credits rolled in that movie, trying to figure out where I knew the name from because I'm oblivious to the idea of what Google is and Wikipedia. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's where I know it from. Yeah, there we go. There's and, help, Nick. And, um, and I'm uh, a librarian, so that's kind of sad. I would say that Frank was an interesting concept but was not done as well as it probably could have been. I think Nick would probably agree with that. I do. Yep. And uh, this film, I think we actually had a pretty wide range of opinions on. I know Toussaint was a big fan of it, so why don't you start off, Toussaint, just give a really quick view of what you thought about uh, the film Room, which uh, had obviously a very well-regarded performance by Brie Larson as she is the heavy favorite to win Best Actress in a Leading Role at the upcoming Oscars this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of things with Brie Larson in it. Like, my only uh, experience with her is as uh, nerd... uh, Abed's nerdy girlfriend from that one season of Community that we don't talk about, and I thought that she was one of the bright spots in that. So, like, it's, it says a lot to her ability to be able to, you know, pull something great out of that wretch of hell. Um, but in in Room, I thought that she was terrific. I really enjoyed her, and I know that I am definitely the the outlier uh, in this group. But I actually really enjoyed uh, the kids' um, performance. What, what was his name? It's well, a, his name in the uh, the film Satan. is Jack. Wow, that's a step. That is something right there. <laughs> what did um, you say? What? He's, he said Satan. Oh my god, dude! dude he's he's just a kid. He he does. You know what? Actually, though, if you look at the kid's picture, he does kind of look like the kid who played Damien. Yes, that's what I'm trying to in, say. Uh, the Omen reboot yeah. from years yeah. ago with Lee Schreiber and Julia Stiles. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. So. But um, I thought that hit the actor's name, by the way, is Jacob Tremblay. Jacob Tremblay. I actually really enjoyed him. Like I don't mind, I don't mind children actors um, as long as they don't make a nuisance of themselves. I, I didn't mind that the the film's focus was on him in, instead of like Brie Larson's character because I, from my understanding of the source material, it was actually told through her voice versus like the kid's voice, like being the context of it all because like. Personally, I just like the way that the the film was able to kind of like position me within the worldview of this child who's pretty much <laughs> oblivious to the nature of his world and is trying to construct it much in the same way that like I I venture to guess that all of us like try to construct our world at least from an early age and that we kind of sort of at least learning from cartoons or learning from like picture books of like anthrop- anthropomorphic like animals and stuff like that we try to imbue human characteristics onto our environment because they are that is the only referent that we have for a sense of self and a sense of security and safety and so when he's talking to Mr. Chair or Mr. TV and is like first talking about like how first there's the room and then there's the sky and then there's the universe and then there's heaven and over the course of this film like Brie Larson, you understand like why she told him the story to basically, um, for lack of a better word, sedate him from rebellion, from trying to get out there because it would inevitably lead to his his possible death or murder. Um, but just seeing his world expand and how he kind of like deals with the uh, the what, what's what's the word for it the the culture shock, I guess of entering into an outside world of knowing what that means to interact with other people like i thought that was really compelling and i thought that i wish that there was more i wish there was more difficulty communicated on his part like of him like acclimating to this because i felt like brie larson was the one character who her, her character joy who um had the most trouble acclimating because she had already had a taste of that world 
and coming back to it. She's just trying to slip into a sense of normality that she feels is inextricable from that. But like for for Jack, he this is his new normal now. I think that was. I have to say the the weakest part of the film for me is that even though I thought Brie Larson gave a really good performance, and yeah. I don't necessarily know if she should have been the overwhelming favorite to win Best Leading Actress because I thought other um, people who were nominated also gave good performances, and I thought she was good as well. But I feel like that was the problem for me of this film, a film that I liked actually quite a bit, uh, th- you know, three and a half out of five, not like overwhelmingly, but I enjoyed it, that we just... I don't feel like we spent enough time with her. Like, I feel like we spent so much time focusing on Jack and, and his struggles and his worldview. And it's important that he is going to have a chance to still discover the world and not have his entire life be completely shattered. Obviously this is going to be a, for the rest of your life type thing, always remembering that you grew up in a room with your mom sharing bath together when you're five years old. But, and breast milk. Well, yeah. he doesn't agree with me on that, but like I will, <laughs> who, who doesn't agree with you on that? Alex doesn't agree with me on, on that, what? on, on the fact that like Brie Larson's character, joy was breastfeeding, like her son Jack up until like before leaving the room. I'm There's not... a key scene that actually alludes yeah. to that. And I it, will it, go down with the ship on this argument. It, allu- I, it alludes to her breastfeeding <clears throat> him at some point. It doesn't necessarily mean that she was breastfeeding him up until the moment that we dro- are dropped let's, in on that. Let's dissect this scene for a second yeah. because I, I do want to get this out in the open because, first of all, I think you're mistaking Alex for me hmm. because I was the one who I think is steadfast that if that's what that scene is alluding to, which is the scene in which much after – They've been rescued from the room. Yeah. Spoilers, but it's also <laughs> is also a halfway point in the movie. We've already talked and about how they enter into the, the poster room. is them outside of the room, so yeah. you can't figure it out. <laughs> um, but at the point in which they are starting to acclimate to this real world, one of his, I would say, one of uh, whatever the character's name, but Jack Tremblay's characters, uh, kind of slip back into, I would say, like a regression of like what he used to do in the room. At one point, he reaches for her shirt. And I don't. I th- you you say it's like a breastfeeding illusion. That's what that that is. That is he, the he reaches for yeah. her shirt and she says no, all gone. Yeah, she that's, said no more, no more. Yeah. Okay. And my my only question about that is that like I don't understand the logic behind that because she says as, something more than no more. She she says something to the to the effect of there's no more left or something like okay. that. Yeah. And. And if that's the case, like, I'm not disagreeing, that's not what's said or what is said. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that scene because I think one thing that is pretty clear cut is that they were not hurting for resources. I'm not saying they had, like, an entire pantry full, but they are shown having cereal every day with milk. I mean, I, uh, I, <laughs> I, I'm just so confused by why this is such a throwaway moment for something that never really seemed to be actually supported by the movie that came before it and um so that's why i'm just perplexed by the, the fact that it's even i in think it to that's, begin with. that scene and there are other scenes in it something that i liked about this which people can dislike about it is it sort of tries to paint a picture of what was happening before we were dropped in on the world which is that she probably was breastfeeding him a lot longer than a child normally would even if she's not breastfeeding him when we are dropped in on their world and it's just a little addition that i i actually liked but 
to kind of go against what Toussaint was saying, I don't think she was breastfeeding him right up to the moment when we are dropped in the story, but I think she probably was, and I think that's what that scene was referring to. If I can really quickly finish what I was saying about sure. Brie Larson before I completely forget about it and we move on to something else, I feel like the problem was is that her character almost gets sidelined for some parts of this film where we <clears throat> focus so much on Jack and we really get... I feel like not enough time to really spend with joy as a character because I feel like her recovery for me personally is a lot more interesting for what I was watching in the film, even though everything with Jack is interesting because he's a child who's only known this and he's now has the chance to really grow up in, in a, in a real world and, and probably have to have therapy and recover from this traumatic beginning to his life. But I feel like Brie Larson's character is much more intriguing in terms of what her um, future is going to be. And we get like small things that just seem to be by the book stereotypical. Like, <laughs> oh, this is what happens to everybody who goes undergoes trauma. They have this and this and this. And then she's gone for 15 minutes and then she comes back and then there's more. And then, <clears throat> Like there just wasn't enough there for me to really grasp onto from what I was already enjoying her performance and I wanted more out of it. And I feel like spending so much time focusing on Jack's character took away from what the film could have been for me, at least I can, I can definitely agree with that. I feel like there, there is certainly a, uh, a gap in the trajectory of her arc that I feel like is, is missed for the fact that, Jack's narration because Jack Jack doesn't know. We're if we're if we're if we're kind of like peripherally moving into this world through Jack's like con- contextual like uh like speech like 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 how he's contextualizing everything. Then like he can't know everything. We're not going to be able to see what's going on with Brie Larson in that way. Um, another thing that but there are plenty of scenes where he's not in the room. So, I mean, as far as, like, it, yeah. if the film had been edited in a way to suggest mm. such, I would say, some thematic resonance, I would be on board with that. But yeah. in my opinion, uh, if I guess if I just give a generalization, it's because I was not a fan of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I thought the fact that I, besides the fact that I could not stand Jacob Tremblay, even though he seems like a very nice young lad. Uh, <laughs> He's a very nice young lad, <laughs> but he can go eat shit. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. <laughs> once, the, uh, once the second act started and it became primarily uh, told from his perspective, it just kind of lost all goodwill for me because I thought that situation took what, for me, was a very brutal situation and then gave it this kind of what I call a shiny and manipulative veneer that kind of makes the whole situation easier to swallow and then also ends up shortchanging Brie Larson's character. I mean, so in a way I felt kind of insulting, like this is the way to write an Oscar movie about a said situation. And I think the fact that we had a 10-minute discussion on this stupid breastfeeding scene is only proof positive that there's some serious writing flaws in this movie as far as like the consistency in the way it relays information about the event and the trauma surrounding this event. And Mm. that's just, I I was not able to really connect with it. There is another problem that I will admit um, that I have with this film and that it suffers from what I'm going to call Lord of the ring itis (laughs) and that it fucking ends at least three times. It, It could have ended at least three times and it doesn't. And both of those times could have, like, the longer that it goes on, the longer I feel like it loses its potency of being able to, like, end on a high note. 
I actually yeah. agree with you guys. And even though I feel like the very ending of the film was somewhat fitting for what the, the ending of the film should be, mm-hmm. I feel like I personally wanted the movie to end after the, the second ending that you're talking about where I was like, oh, this all makes sense. It ties it up in a nice package. Mm-hmm. And then we have this... I want to go back to Rome. Well, thanks for giving it away for (laughs) anyone who hasn't seen it. But at the same time, yes, they do go back to the room that they were trapped in. And then the jigsaw theme starts playing. (laughs) Do, 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 You son of a bitch! This is your sin. You couldn't leave the past behind. Yeah. It just, um, yeah. So, (laughs) I... I don't know. I, I I still like the film. I think there were at least three or four scenes that I would definitely call standout scenes for me that I really enjoyed, especially uh, the time when we have the transition period from attempting to escape the room and then you know getting back into the real world. I mean, those are scenes that you have to. It's like in the Revenant. Like if you fuck up the bear scene, the entire movie is shot. So whatever that. Like you, you need to have that part of the film be ex- excellent, and I think it actually was that so. scene uh, that's transitioning from uh, inside room to like the outside world was so intense and so like enrapturing for me that I became that obnoxious guy in the theater. Oh yeah, you did. I did. I'm so sorry, yeah. but like it, it it really got to me. It yeah, really... fucking Toussaint rooting over here yeah. next to me. I'm like, sorry. come on, get go, get, go, 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 go. Jesus Christ! I'm sorry. It's it, it really got to me. I gotta say that that sequence was my favorite part of the movie. I will admit, as far as uh, the way it was shot and the fact that Jacob Tremblay didn't have any lines. And <laughs> God damn! But it it did have one problem in it that was also persistent throughout the whole thing, which is I absolutely loathed the score in this movie, and not just loathed it, but especially during that scene, uh, the score reminded me of like the explosions in the skies score for the. Uh, uh, seminal TV show Friday Night Lights, and it was just like, which is a very, I would say, down to earth show about very, I would say, uh, average everyday drama, not you know something like what we're seeing. So to see this like weird deleted scene from Friday Night Lights, essentially, uh, it's just really creepy. That like it's just way too meditative for a scene, and I get that they're trying to not be exploitative and not like make this like a thriller or anything which i i can understand but mm-hmm. the, I, they went too far to the other of like no this is poetic you see him in the world for the first time like well no he's fucking stuffed in a carpet roll he isn't really <laughs> not out of the woods yet so to speak you know and so yeah. I, I don't know i could not deal with the score either <laughs> and uh, what a waste of william h macy too uh not just a waste yeah. of but like giving him like a character moment that also unfortunately doesn't really make any sense because we have no real context for him. Uh, there was a lot of things that just did not, uh, was not supported at all for me. Yeah. His character, um, something that we won't get too much detail on, but it seems like they tried to make the, the interest with his character, the interesting part of his character of, of him being a, a father who cannot cope with, with certain things and, and, and that kind of thing. But there's no payoff to it, you know. We 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 find out about it, and then it's over, and then there there's no other end of the equation. It just is, and it it just doesn't make sense to bring in an actor of that stature, have him be a part of of a a conflict early on in the film, and then just leave it. And it it just that some seemed like a, a wasted opportunity, like you're talking about with William H Macy. But at the same time, sort of. 
out of place too. Yeah, uh, because he's only in two scenes, so yeah. you cannot build up something uh, as emotionally nuanced as something like that, uh, and then just think it works because you know he said the line. You know, like even he can't save something like that. And that was one other thing I'll mention is that the psychology of this movie felt like. <clears throat> this was written by somebody who's read all the tell-all books written by survivors of these situations instead of actually by somebody who understands what somebody like that went through or to somebody with a more than elementary view on psychology and mm. like Pete and oh she's got PTSD so I'm going to make sure to show that she's angry in this scene. Speaking of elementary views on things, how about those questions that the interviewer asks during the uh the yeah. primetime interview Oh my god. Felt like she I was back was at Sundance. Such a bitch. I'm sorry. <laughs> like this is this is speaking as somebody who like I I interview people and I like make questions and I like I talk to them and stuff, but she was obviously like this is like watching that like reminded me of the reason why I don't miss like watching primetime TV or like Whoa. like primetime news. T- okay. Uh, primetime yeah. news okay. at least because like it's it's <laughs> she just scared me. It's just so it, it's just so gross and it's just so like yeah, exploitive. But here's the thing, like it's too heavy. I love prime time television. I, I feel like how I felt about the Missy Pyle character in Gone Girl. It's like, look at all the stereotypes that we're throwing at but you. That in movie one is small a comedy, and it, so it is a satire, and it works for that. Like yeah. everybody in that movie is playing a somewhat heightened version of what their that's, stereotypes that, that's are. That's true, but for me at least, in that particular film. Like it was, oh look, we've got we've got everything we possibly could want here. We have Missy Pyle playing Nancy Grace, and here it is, and we have it, it, like it, it felt like a checklist, which I feel like unfortunately that's what this felt like. Of well, we're gonna have her say some awful question like, why didn't you commit suicide? And oh, it's gonna be it's gonna be perfect, and Dude. it's gonna everyone's going to understand it, and it's kind of going like what I was talking about earlier with. Uh, her character actually where it just feel, felt like they looked at the stereotypes and went what's the most stereotypical question we can have and even if that's what they were going for like can we just <laughs> do a little better than that? As, as far as like what you're comparing those two they're, they're so completely different for me because one is like in, in the case of Room it's emotionally manipulative drama mm-hmm. and the other is I think we're supposed to laugh at all three parties involved which is the dumbass that's asking the stupid tabloid questions the dumbass that you know is perpetuating the male chauvinism and the frightening uh, bitch who is only you know giving MRAs exactly what they want you know like I'm just uh, saying it's a cycle vicious cycle yeah. of a satire whereas like it because that's something like the Missy Pyle scene is not supposed and like make you feel bad like oh like that's what made this just actually sick and stupid because it was just so heavy-handed and and it, and it was really weird how it kind of like tried to shift blame or a question onto joy as to why like the the question of the, the the last ending question of her of her interview that we see is like why when you had jack didn't you just like give the kid to your captor in order to like have dropped off at a hospital it's yeah, like that's a, that's a great idea if, no be- because like wh- what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with this woman like like did you ever think about kidnapping them <laughs> That was a flashback to the Sundance Film Festival. I was going to say, this, like, inter- like, this interviewer like, was uh, just a Sundance uh, question and answer Here's what I got to say, and the, the reason why Hell that... Film. Oh here's, my what, God. here's what I got to say about that scene. One thing is that I recently watched five minutes of the, I think it was 
Diane Sawyer, maybe not, but I think it was Diane Sawyer interview with the mom that finally said something publicly who was the mother of one of the Columbine shooters. Oh, wow. And I could only stomach the interview for five minutes because it was <clears throat> very much a gross interview mm-hmm. where – you know, there's just nothing redeeming about it because it doesn't matter what answer she gives. No one's going to forgive her. And I'm not talking about myself, but yeah. I'm just saying like – It's it's constantly – it's it's not even a an interview. More of it is like a unofficial trial. Yeah. It's a trial by, by, by public opinion <clears throat> right. of how to indict her for what happened. Like it must be her fault for having raised – a kid who did something so monstrous. Right. But what I was saying is as far as like how that relates to the scene is that, I, you know, that's why the scene didn't work for me. Cause like, even if it's certainly touching on something very real, which is that the media, especially these kind of interviews, these glam interviews about tragic trauma do gloss over things and, you know, heighten things and like man- manipulation kind of whatever. Like, I don't know that it's ever been that ridiculous, you know, and that's what made it just stick out. Like if we could have just, just like everything else, if we could have just added a little more nuance. Like yeah. I would have been on board and like, I, I don't know that there would have been a, anybody, a copy editor would have just green lighted. Yeah. Ask her if she would have committed suicide. That That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Journalism. That makes sense. Yeah. So we did crap on this movie quite a bit, but I still I still quite liked a, a lot of it and uh I would recommend it, but I would not. A lot of I the would. a lot of the over You're the top <laughs> over the top praise for this movie I don't quite get. So I didn't see that much over the top praise. I mean I got nominated. Just, well yeah. <laughs> a lot of shit gets nominated. The tour has got nominated for a Golden Globe, doesn't Shh. I'm just saying. <laughs> A anyway. lot of people really liked Room. Let's put it that way. I, I yeah. So I among them. Yeah, I liked yeah. it too. Yeah. Um, and we've talked a lot about Room, and we'll so I will shorten version of the rest of what our weekend reviews was going to be. Uh, I was going to bring up a film that we previously did an episode on, which happened to be a. Uh, one of my favorite films of 2015, which was The Revenant. So what'd you think? Uh, believe it or not, I still liked it. After I saw it for a third time. Don't wow. believe it. And I really, I think three is like a magic number for me for seeing films that I, I really like because... It's the magic number. Sure, yeah. There's dancing involved, just like Tucson's doing right now. Yeah. And holding up three fingers, very good. <laughs> I feel like the first time I see, you see the film, you're just finding out what's going on. The second time, you're going in and you're trying to enjoy it again for the second time. But I feel like the third time I go see a film that I really like, I really find out why I like it so much. And find the little things that are making me actually like it. And I feel like that happened here as well. Um, the three major things that I wanted to talk about real quickly... Where I've already mentioned this, so it's, it's it's a small part, but the sound design and sound editing in this film was absolutely phenomenal, especially for uh, theater experience, which is really ultimately the reason why I wanted to see this in the theater again was to experience sitting in a room that has speakers on every side and in front of you and behind you, because there are multiple scenes, not just the one that comes to mind where they are in the uh, the uh, the house or whatever with uh, Dom Hall Gleason's character going up the stairs and going to the safe, which is the most obvious scene in the film, which has just absolutely fantastic sound editing. But there are other scenes where things happen off screen and behind you, and you can still hear like not just people talking, but the action that's happening. It sounds like it's happening right behind you, and I 
I just felt like that was so excellent in this film. And I, I'm just so happy that I went to go see this film again just for that reason. There are things that I still liked a lot, but that was uh, the one thing that I just think is just amazing that I really enjoyed. The other thing that I, I really liked about this film, uh, seeing it for the third time, is how important uh, fi- the five senses are, uh, especially for Hugh Glass and also uh, showing them as well for Tom Hardy's character of Fitzgerald because I feel like we're shown how important, not necessarily hunting, I would say, but in terms of being a, a navigator and knowing how the world is for Hugh Glass as he is the one who's leading this expedition, even though Dom Hall Gleason's the leader, technically, Hugh Glass is still the one who is always trusted with making the decisions. And I feel like we get every single one of his senses used in a very interesting and I I would say like incredible way. Um, Even the small things that we as the audience can't experience because the, the scenery is beautiful in this film. Even if you don't necessarily love the cinematography, which I know some people like me loved it. Some people didn't. There are still some just absolutely incredible, beautiful scenes in this film. Uh, And as I mentioned, the sound is great, but we can't as an audience experience what something tastes like and what something feels like. And I feel like the characters really try to bring that alive throughout this film. When, when Leonardo DiCaprio is biting into a fish that he catches in the, in the river, like or liver or, or liver, we see a very certain look on his face that either brings joy or, or any, something like that. that This will get me an Oscar. Yeah, well, perhaps that is it, but I think it's something a little more that my property. <laughs> oh man, I'll do what my I my property. I'll do what I want to do with my after, property. After I'm done with this fish, we're serving white cake. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think that was something that was really important for me is looking at all the small moments that involved the different senses and how they were used, especially at this time, uh, where they're pelt going looking for pelts and trying to trade them and that was just awesome for me is is just thinking about this film in those terms and the last thing i wanted to mention was the over the top um importance of the water canteen in this film which is almost like beat over the head of the audience multiple times it is zoomed in on which in a just being like hey idiot look this water canteen is extremely important so you should be paying attention however i will say i think this is now my favorite moment in the film uh and that is when fitzgerald for the first time is explaining uh when he was initially scalped and obviously he wasn't completely scalped because he's still alive Mm -hmm. But when he was initially scalped, um, went back when he was living in Texas, and he's talking to uh, Bridger about this. And this is when Will Poulter is scraping that symbol onto the canteen. And I think it's amazing that it was totally getting to Fitzgerald. And I feel like he actually noticed at the exact same time I was noticing it because he starts talking in detail about what these scrapes sounded like of someone pulling a knife against his skull oh. as you hear Poulter scratching against the canteen. Mm-hmm. And at that exact moment when it clicked for me, Fitzgerald turns around and tells him to fucking stop Give doing that. that. And I'm like, man, that was, that was like right on point yeah. for, for what? So 
a lot of small things, which happens when you see a film that you really like for the third time, I think. And that was really important for me. There still are things that I, I feel like aren't the greatest. I will say one thing. Um, the girl, I don't remember what her name is, but I thought she winks at the end of the film, which she's just blinking, which I was really happy about because I'm like, God, that's so stupid that she was winking at him. Yeah. But she just blinked, so that was good. But there were some things that I don't love about the film, but the little things that I absolutely love far outweigh the negative. So it's still five out of five for me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Revenants. So. I actually like rewatched this film with a couple of friends who hadn't seen it. So like, I just went with them just to see it again. And I'll say that like, I, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more this time. I think that my rating still sits at a three just simply because one, the cinematography didn't bother me as much in the beginning, like rewatching it again. I already knew what to expect and I wasn't trying to see through the eyes for the first time. Like it was, it, 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 it didn't bother me. It didn't, it, it didn't win points for me, but it didn't bother me. But there is one thing that did bother me. Like again, like returning to it was this entire like Inuritu, Inuritu's uh, appeal to cinema verite. And you have like this one scene where, um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, what's his name? It's uh, well, uh, Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass. Um, he's he's looking out at this at this field, and it pans over, and you see that it's this field of buffalo, and one of them is being torn apart by like some type of like cougar or character or something like that. Yeah, and it's all like CGI, and I'm just like, okay, so we're going for cinema verite, but we're gonna animate like a bunch of buffalo just like getting eaten the fuck out by like some like cougar thing. I was like, okay, that's cool. Well, there's a lot of CGI in this movie. The bear is CGI, and ninety yeah. percent of the time the it's I like, didn't mind the bear because I didn't I I didn't think that it was so gl- it didn't feel like CGI it felt like good CGI to the point where it's practical and digital so that like if I felt like the physicality of it actually like affected the world around like when the when the bear just like adds insult to in- in- injury and just puts its claw on his face just like fuck you presses you into the dirt I thought that was awesome yeah, the bear scene, I mentioned it earlier, that if they'd fucked that up, the whole movie would have been lost right. pretty much. Yeah. Like, I, f- I feel like, yeah, I know your opinion on that. You're like, it doesn't matter. It was still an awful film, and the bear was okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I said I think they did. but Yeah, well, they, yeah. I, I, we know your feelings. You were not a fan. Um, <laughs> no, no, I... We, that's what I'm saying. Like I try to talk too much about. It. We already had an entire episode going, yeah. going through everyone's feelings on this. Bearable. Uh-huh. We got a whole episode. You got ahead a second of chance us, to make that joke. Where uh, you go, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the the bear scene was great. I mean, and and the CGI with the bear was absolutely phenomenal. And and that's the thing that's come so far in Hollywood is, is CGI interaction with physical people. Mm-hmm. And if you can do CGI well, cause you pretty much assume that if you're doing CGI, it's going to be well, even though people still can't do it for some reason, a lot of the time, but real good interaction between a CGI creation and a real person is something that is still very much hard to knock down. And I feel like it's elusive. It's, it's just so good in this film and it, it worked out so well in that particular scene. So, yeah, but yeah, still love the Revenant. Uh, I'm a big fan of it, and I'm uh, I'm glad that they ended up making the film that they made because even though it is not the most entertaining film at every turn, and uh, it's not the most necessarily thought provoking film at the same time, I I just really enjoy the film for what it is, no matter what its ultimate message is or was supposed to be. So yeah, yeah. 
I'm a big fan, and I will pass the baton off to Nick as he can talk about um, maybe an old classic for him that we may have talked about on this podcast before as well. Oh, man. Well, I did rewatch Starship Troopers. <laughs> yes, I did. And it was fantastic. I wouldn't say I noticed anything new. Uh, I would se. like to know more. Yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, but it is amazing. And that's certainly, it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen as far as like making me laugh. And uh, and yet it's also just a really ridiculously good, cheesy sci-fi war flick. Uh, like, you know, you take away that... You take away all the stuff that I love about it, and you still have something that I like about it. So just it's just a wonderful, wonderfully layered cake that I will never stop eating. Welcome to the layer cake. Oh, boy. Uh, but the film I really want to talk about really quick is I rewatched a one of my all, all one of my favorites from 2014 which was Bird People by the director Pascale Ferrand which was a French film uh starring Josh Charles who people may know from TV shows such as The Good Wife or Sports Night or second so the first season of In Treatment or a lot of other stuff but he's really been around in TV land and he's very good uh, and the other person, her name is Radha Michelle, I believe, is, uh, yes. And also a, uh, shall we say, kind of cameo appearance from Matthew Almerick. Uh But you can easily watch the film and not realize that he is in it for uh, very obvious but spoilery reasons. Oh, way to go, Serge. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is, uh, I like, I, I really liked the film the first time I saw it. It was in my top 10 of the, of that year. And I got to say that I raised it from a four to a four and a half upon this rewatch. And if I watch it a few more times, it might become an all time favorite. Wow. This is for me. I I wrote a review on Letterboxd and I'm not going to read it, but if you want to read it. Not going to be Toussaint. I'm sorry. That's just how I get my my thoughts (laughs) together, man. You do, but. In there, and I kind of regurgitate, I kind of said how, like, this is such a prime example of how cinema can be magic, uh, and not in the way that something like The Prestige is, where it's, like, literally trying to be... like (laughs) literally magic. But, like, the idea of watching something and both being drawn into it to the point where you don't realize that you've forgotten to separate reality and and the actual art that's happening. Films are dreams. They are. And... um, (laughs) And the and also just coupled with the special effects on display, which I also cannot talk about without spoiling, uh, but there is no CGI in the movie, which is incredible after you've seen the movie and you realize, like, but they had to do a lot to, to make certain things work. But this is a, uh, it's a movie that tells two short stories. It's a two-hour movie, and, like, each hour, so to speak, is dedicated to one of our two pro- protagonists, and they are not related to each other at all as far as uh, they, they you know they don't meet or anything like that they just kind of occupy the same geographical space which is this hotel and uh, the first story centers around an american tourist who's there on business uh, in france uh, who's played by josh charles and he's there for business so he's staying at the hotel in which the second character works as a maid for so obviously there's these kind of i would say mischance meetings, so to speak, that could or could not have happened. But the film is nowhere near interested in exploring that because it's really just trying to link them together thematically because both of their stories have to do with uh, 
these kind of like almost tales of elation and liberation. Uh, and it's, it's so hard to talk about without spoiling it. And I don't want to spoil it because it is one of the most unique film experiences uh, anybody will ever have if they do not know what was going to happen. And I'm not trying to sell it as like having some grand twist, but most movies would not take the chances that this movie does uh, at certain points. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a fantastic movie. I love the way both stories uh, complement each other and work together. Uh, the last 30 seconds are a little too self-conscious for its own good, but everything leading up to that final moment uh, is absolutely fantastic. So well acted, uh, so well edited, put together. Even the prologue, there's a prologue before the uh, the first story actually begins the prologue, and I'll I'll spoil that so to speak because it's just the prologue. But the way it's edited is that it's it's done in such a way that it almost suggests that we're gonna watch the two stories of Gary and Audrey. Those are the character names, uh, almost by chance because for a good ten minutes we are just watching people randomly just cutting from this person on a bus to this person on the bus to this person and so on and so forth and then we just happen to see audrey and we only know it's her because then we realize that the camera never left her for a little while and 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 i just love that idea that like you know there are eight million stories in this city these are just two of them and uh and i just thought it's yeah the whole movie's fantastic and i believe it is on netflix instant Uh, so if anybody wants to watch it they can and i totally recommend it and i also recommend finishing the movie even if you don't like it because the second story is very different than the first story so hmm. i'm not saying it would change your opinion on the entire film but it would be a di- you know it's not like one of those where like well i'm not gonna watch another hour of this well you don't have to because when that story is over a different one will start and it is probably even more off-putting than the first but hmm. uh it's uh it's a departure so okay I absolutely recommend bird people hmm Something to look forward to, possibly, yeah. if you have Netflix Instant. That's right. Yeah. All right, Tucson. I, I know you were excited, even though when we initially said we were going to do a uh, weekend review, you said you had nothing to talk about, and now you're the most excited out of everybody. So yeah, here we go. I remember that I had, uh, I did actually watch a lot of stuff that's... I, I didn't necessarily like log onto Letterboxd, but... The Tucson, w- I'm on. getting better at it. Shut up. It took me like almost half a year to start using Letterboxd, and I'm very glad that I started doing it. Um... But I actually managed over the course of at least three days because I was busy with work and I was trying to like space it out. But I finished uh, a rewatch of Francis Lawrence's uh, 2005 uh, comic book adaptation, Constantine, with uh, Keanu Reeves in the titular role. And I'm actually a, a pretty big fan of the original like comic uh, from Alan Moore. It basically stars this uh, this exorcist. Um, well, in, in, in the story of the, the film, he kills himself because he's able to have this gift of second sight that he's able to see angels and demons and he can't live in a world where basically he's a, a clairvoyant and everybody else won't believe him. And sort of like his entire adult life is working as an exorcist in order to send back demons to hell in order to earn himself back into the, the good graces of um, going to heaven because since he took his life, it's it's against it's a cardinal sin against – Catholicism to be able to go back in heaven. So is this based on a true story or? Uh, no, this is based on a comic book. This is based on a comic book, friend. Are you saying comic books can't be real? Yes. Yes, unless they're autobiographical. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, there's it, when I when I look back on it and just looking back on having recently just rewatched it, it's a very tame 
comic book adaptation with the thin pretense of a horror exorcism film attached to it. I think that there are like some pretty good like action scenes, like the CGI is pretty good. But really what kind of like leaps out to me is just kind of like the the bit characters who play a role in this like larger arc. Like we have Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf before like like maybe on the cusp of his of his saturation before in, going to places with a bag on his head. Yeah, before um, you know, like uh, showing off his genitalia in in uh, in nymphomaniac or like re- wrest- did he show off his genitalia because I know there were body doubles for or the or wrestling wrestling a underage girl in a cage for that uh, that Sia music video it was even before Transformers oh wait wait it? no he didn't show off his genitalia in nymphomaniac it was in a Sigal Ross music video okay that's what it was yeah get your child genitalia right thanks yeah. for clearing that up Tucson yep sorry about that genitalia. I don't even know. I'm, I'm just no. please, okay. Please and, go on. Anyway, okay. So he plays like Chaz Shia Kramer. Beef. Chaz Kramer, who is John Constantine's like apprentice, and he plays like you know the wisecracking kid or whatever. Um, um, we have Max Baker, who plays. Th- this is the cool thing about his about Constantine's like group that helps him out. That the two guys like their names are B Man and Father Hennessy. And the way that they die, the way that they're afflicted by, like, the demon Balthazar who's trying to, like, break into in, in, into Earth, like, the way that he kills them, he, he works through, through other people, is that, like... Sends the Predator? No. That would be so cool if they did that. I would have loved that. That would have been a five out of five star film for me. Um, but Father Hennessy is afflicted... Um, where his his throat is parched and he can't breathe so that he just runs into a liquor store and he tries to, like, steal liquor bottles and, and down himself, but, like, none of the alcohol is, like, flowing into his mouth. And eventually he just kind of, like, passes out and then, like, you cut to another scene and it's basically he drank himself to death and he didn't realize it. He he was able to drink all this stuff, but he didn't real, realize it. Like, his name's Father Hennessy and B-Man is pretty much, like eaten alive from the inside by a host of hornets. So that's I, I, I thought that was that was particularly interesting. Yeah. I've got to tell you, man, that it's, it's pretty fucked up. Just for me, that sounds horrible. Yeah, it's fucking horrible. No, 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 no. Like, <laughs> no, like, no. Like, like like it sounds like a terrible movie. Yeah, it's 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 not a good movie, <laughs> but I like like the, the certain parts of it. Like the guy uh Gavin Rosedahl, who I think plays like the the lead singer of a band called Bush. I mean, uh, he doesn't play him. He's actually him. In <laughs> oh, real life. yeah, whatever. He's he's that guy. Yeah, he plays the but lead singer his, of a his, band. His role as as Balthazar was cool, just because like I liked his um his sort of like visual tick of like having this quarter that he like fumbles in between like uh he, he tumbles in between his fingers. I thought that was like a, a cool trick. Yeah. Um, Tilda Swinton. I thought like this was the role for me that like really sold for me her. Her androgynous, like amorphous ability to fill out a character because she played the angel Gabriel on Earth, and so it's like Gabriel has more of like a masculine tone, and she's a female, and she kind of plays like literally this this character very much like um, Alan Rickman's character from from Dogma in that she is asexual as, as as an angel. So I thought that was really cool, but I think that the crowning piece de resistance of a performance in this film for me was one of my favorite actors acting as Lucifer himself, and that was Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare's turn as, as Lucifer in this was fucking incredible. I wanted him did to Did he be... throw anybody into a wood chipper? No. Oh. No, he did not. Well, that's but, a disappointment. But then. he was just so... Just just so sickly and gross and, and, and just like such a wisecracking asshole. I just loved it. Um, 
Sounds like Underworld 6, man, I gotta tell you. I'm not sure about this you know, one. No, have you ever seen it? No. What oh, what, he shut you down. What, what you're describing, again, sounds just right up my alley of things I absolutely despise in movies. What so. do you despise in movies? Just just the pretense of supernatural nah, like it phenomenon? Just, it just Pretty sounds, much. It just, yeah, sure, I guess. Yeah, it's I'm one way to look at it. Yeah. Being honest. Yeah, yeah, it just... Everything you're describing just sounds like things I don't like. Between so. angels and demons, and oh. there's holy water, and then they gotta like fight, and they gotta go to hell. Yeah, I guess it just sounds. It doesn't sound like me. Uh, I mean, I like, I like the the premise. I don't think that the execution worked very well, and I just don't think that this iteration of Constantine is very much loyal. It's 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 such a lukewarm, sanitized version of the character that I've I've grown to love through the comics. But I we thought never. It, gotten that either with a comic book character to film adaptation too yeah yeah um but i i I thought that it was it was a serviceable movie i thought that simply alone for those like key characters another character who's um whose character name i whose actor name i can't remember but he was like the one of the henchmen from guardians of the galaxy he was like the black guy who was like who when star lord like um Dijon. Oh, uh, Juman Hansu. Juman Hansu. Yeah, he played uh, Papa Midnight, who is basically this guy who works as like a. Um, <laughs> fuck you. Anyway, I'm sorry that name. His name is Papa Midnight. Oh my god, that, I'm sorry. Yeah. Now we're getting the characters sound like they're from a Frank Miller <laughs> creation, and you like Sin City. Yeah, I do. Oh, I do. I'm going to go sit in the corner now. Um, can, you go episode, can you go an episode without doing the I'm Daniel Day-Lewis I'm thing? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just so infectious. Um, is it? Yeah. Um, Papa Midnight is a really cool character. Like, how he has to work as kind of like a, a go-between between the angels and demons and stuff. But, like, I'll just wrap it up. I thought it was okay. I will recommend it. It's it's not a great film, but it's entertaining. Okay. Um, But my, my last thing that I want to talk about is I finally started watching the second season of The Leftovers, and it's fucking incredible. I can't wait to watch more. I'm only two episodes in, and I'm just trying to, like, get through it so that I can, like, talk about it with you guys. Okay. I want to ask a question before we move on from The Leftovers. Yeah. What do you think, and Alex, bite your tongue, of the new theme song? I love it. Me too. I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Iris Dement is one of the best country singers of mm. this modern generation and that is a fantastic tune that i don't know is so thematically apropos for that show I, I i can't even stand it i don't even know what they're going to do to try and top it i don't um, think they are i think like they they picked this as a way because they didn't like their old ones okay like mm. I, I don't know what they're gonna do for, good, for the, the third season we're awful i like i like the i like the, the yeah, old ones see? i like the old ones I were like both. Uh, the they old ones were was ex- representative of the tone of the first season no nah, the old ones were exactly what everybody who hated the show thought the show was mm. as far as like this overly pretentious uh show about I it was just audacious like mm. It doesn't even make sense. I it's mean, a this, fucking fresco. This, 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 fresco pictorial, yeah. this pictorial representation uh, of the people, like, I'm sorry, but if we're just going by, like, logic as to what this show has established and what a departure is, yeah. uh, what happens in the second season title is actually more yeah, I just emotionally like, cognizant of I, what it looks I, like I, and yeah. what what happens. To be fair. I, just, I just like the music and the the animation that was done in the, in the first one. I, 
to be fair, I, I read an interview on Art of the Title, because that's like one of my favorite websites, where they were talking about how the person who animated that made that, like he was just given the very loose prompt that, you know, we want it to look yeah. like it's a fresco from a church. None of the characters that are actually in the in the actual show actually appear. Right, the same thing in, with in the second thing. season. It's, it's just it's just character archetypes inspired by different types of news stories and other things like that. And it's like right. it's one depiction of like yeah, I, I think the divide between like the the first season and the second season opening is that it really represents two different like during like the 18th century when you had like different poets and different types of artists who like interpreted like this the heavenly firmaments and other shit like that like they all had their own different like tilt to it so i kind of like see it in that sort of vein yeah i mean i'm not saying that like the first season's titles are like atrocious on their own in their own context but like attached to the show that followed it i i thought that that was a horrible marriage and yeah, not only I that mean... but the the tie to religion was also not good because religion is a part of the fabric of the show and to almost i would say to to, to rely that heavily on religious uh imagery uh especially for hand. the first season because technically it's not until the second season that they even acknowledge that religion might have some uh currency uh in this world mm-hmm. uh, it just baffled my mind and oh, okay uh, yeah hmm. i just like the way it looked and sounded so yeah yeah i like both why not both? I didn't really care for the second sucked. one. Yeah, the second one. Nope. Yeah. Uh, I like Why both. do you hate the second one? It's not that I hate it. I just, going off of you how much every I... every time you watch I do. It. Going off of <laughs> Damn. how much I like... I skipped liked, the first one. I liked the first <laughs> one, and then we got to the second season, and my first reaction was, what the fuck is this? And I just didn't like it. It's a not... show retooling. It's fine. Which I, is much I just like what like the second season itself does, which is, uh, basically, I always call that second season a revised draft of the first season, a show, a season that, of television that I quite enjoyed. But, like, the second season goes through the same motions as the first season and just does it with much more aplomb and uh, mm. uh, meticulous craft. Okay. I'm, I'm, and as I'm sure you still are, Tucson, with however many episodes you are through season two, but I am very much excited for season three, and I'm actually kind of on board with the fact that it's only going to be a three-season show. Yeah. So. I, I am as well. Yeah. I, uh... Although I, I also know. think that the finale of the second season, without saying anything about it, mm. completely could have worked as a series finale for me. Uh, that final scene is probably like the summation of the heart of that entire show that I can't imagine that they're really going to be able to top. So we'll see. Could be, but I, I'm i still interested in seeing oh, no, more about the characters. So I, I want to see more as well. I'm just like worried that because I already loved the second season finale that I'll undeniably compare it to uh, because they clearly constructed it to work as both. I mean, if we could, we could find a way for uh, Kevin Garvey <laughs> to be naked in a bathtub at some point in the, that would be great. Why not? It, it, it'll, <laughs> you'll see. It'll, it'll happen a few times throughout the, uh, the second season. Oh, okay. It's something to look well, forward to. It's a motif. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Tucson, once you've, finished off your maybe we'll even have an entire bonus episode talking about the first two seasons of the leftovers something to look forward to so today we are finishing off february favorites uh, as we've talked about both magnolia and gattaca already and today we're talking about the 1995 film casino new decade uh yeah (laughs) it's not like we uh 
picked something other than the 90s for any of our movies. But hey, there were some good movies from the 90s, as it's shown here. And we all were kind of growing up in that time period. Only so 90s kids will understand. <laughs> so this film, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese and based on the book by Nicholas Pileggi. Pil- there you go. Look at this guy, who I believe also wrote the book for Goodfellas. Uh, the only difference is that he had not finished the book yet for Casino when uh, they started filming this movie uh, because they just wanted to crack that shit out. Uh, this film stars Robert De Niro, Sharon Stone, Joe Pesci, and also James Woods and Don Rickles. I was a hell of a handicapper, I can tell you that. I had it down so good that I ran paradise on Earth. I had one of the biggest casinos in Las Vegas to run. For Tangiers. You know, if I did it, I'd have to run on my way. Nobody's gonna interfere with you running the casino, I guarantee you. Mickey, you're a guy. Make a lot of money for us, or so keep a good eye on it. All right. Look at this place, it's made of money. What do you think about me moving out here? I just gotta tell you, it's no joke out here. You gotta keep a low profile. Right off the bat, they don't like guys like us. Oh, yeah. You like your money a lot, yes, don't you? Yes, a lot. Don't you? Yeah. 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 I'm going to settle down. I want a family. You got the wrong girl. You'll be set up for the rest of your life. You don't know me. What do you know me two, three months? They had it all. They ran the show. And it was paradise while it lasted. head in the desert that's no good we got a problem he doesn't listen to me maybe she get lost for a while take a vacation can't make it any clearer son i would just get out i try to do everything for you even though i knew deep down inside you would bury me i buried you you buried yourself i have to be able to trust you with my life can i trust you can i trust you You want me to get out of my own town? You only exist out here because of me. He's a loose cannon. No! Stop it! You realize what you can do? You can get us all killed! You want to get rid of me? Here I am. Go ahead, get rid of me. to go with what Tucson and Nick did. I, I guess I won't talk about necessarily what this film is about since we've talked more about what this film is for us as it's our favorite films. And for me, I, th- I think this film accomplishes so many things that I love about movies, which is why I gravitate towards this film, which is having uh, a lot of characters is, is one thing that I really like in films. A lot of characters that are interesting, but also know their place within a film. I feel like films that are only about one character or two character aren't always my thing, even though I still really like them. Um, I, I always gravitate towards films that um, somehow, some way have lots of interesting characters that come in and out of a story, but also never impede more than they necessarily have to. They are there to serve their purpose and then they are done with their scene. 
And I think the interesting part of this film and what sets it apart from so many other films is that I feel like every scene does serve its purpose, but almost on steroids because every scene in this film probably averages somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 seconds because this is short scene after short scene. We stop somewhere for 30 seconds and we are moving on to the next scene. And there are so very few elongated dialogue scenes that it's just a three hour film that for me goes by so fast every time we, we have this extreme, uh, sort of introduction to the to the film. I mean, the first 40 minutes, for the most part, are an introduction to what we are going to be seeing for the rest of the film. And it, it just, it, the overwhelming use of narration in this film, it just, for some reason, it, it, it has me always interested because it's a very unique way of telling a story, even for Martin Scorsese, who uses narration uh, religiously in his films all, all the time, for the most part. But this film, it's 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 over the top because we, we are getting narrations from two different perspectives for the most part throughout the film, and then randomly we get the the narration from another character, Frankie, who is a side character who has a pivotal not pivotal but a very interesting out of left field narration part of us the story, which is which is great. But it's the narration in this film, which uh, narration done well in films for me is always great. And obviously here it's the like most important part of the film because it's mostly what you're hearing from the film. And it just tells this story so well and starts somewhere, moves up to the top, and then goes down the other way. And it just does it in such a great Martin Scorsese way because this is... This, he has like built this blueprint for him of the of in gangster films of starting at the bottom, working your way to the top, and then just flushing yourself all the way down to the toilet mm-hmm. by the end of the film. And this film does that model to perfection because we spend so much time learning about these characters, where they came from, what they are trying to become. And ultimately, what their faults are going to be. They're, they're laid out right for us. And we have this all done with just some absolutely beautiful scenes that like use light and uh, reflective surf- surfaces in an amazing way. Like I, I just always, always, um, two of my favorite scenes of the entire film are in the first uh, like five minutes of it. Oh, well, uh, something I definitely need to mention, which is the absolutely incredibly awful scene of ace getting blown up in the first minute of the film yeah where it switches to the uh body uh the dummy in the car when it gets blown up because you know that was great they were they were about two years too late from that actually being a, a good part of it but it was that so it's something you can always love as it's horrible in this movie it wouldn't be that noticeable if it wasn't for like that opera music giving it that i would say gravity that eh, i still think it would be noticeable but well, i mean like notable as far as uh yeah like how much it sticks out but anyway. yeah it's not good um <laughs> but then we get uh, i actually think a terrific opening title sequence but then two of my favorite scenes of the film one is when uh, sam turns around for the first time and we we really see him looking right at us and we get the the light sort of turning on him and it's not anything I feel like that's that overly symbolic. It just looks so good to me. It looks like here is your main character that you're going to be following, and this is what he looks like, and here he is in this environment where you're going to be spending the next three hours with him. 
And then we have the other great scene where he's sitting up in his office looking down uh, through the, the glass down uh, onto the uh, casino floor. And then the light, again, kind of uh, fades on him and we see him more than we were able to before. And it's these small little techniques that are so easy and are you know something that is pretty obvious, I would think. And it maybe in other films would be over the top, but here it just works so well for me. But getting back to the story, we have this great telling of this um, this sort of regime that has rose to prominence in Las Vegas at the Tangiers Resort and Casino. The Age of Tangiers. Yes, which uh, the actual casino that this is based off of is the Stardust in Las Vegas. And the actual story, by the way, uh, about uh, the Stardust in Las Vegas was about the uh, main characters, which are Ace, Robert De Niro's character, uh, and then um, also Nikki Santoro, which is Joe Pesci, and Ginger, which is Sharon Stone's character. But that's not their real names. Like They're based on the same characters, mm. but they, are, they have different names and slightly different stories. But they all rise to the absolute tippy top, and things are great, and then they fuck it all up. And it just all, for the last like hour and a half, it's just conflict after conflict after conflict, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse for everybody. And then the film ends in typical Martin Scorsese fashion with pretty much everybody dying, and then we're done. So That's that. And rip that's it and that, <laughs> that's just how it honestly that's just how it went things yeah. were good for a while then they were not good and then they were dead and then it was over so that's wasn't fine. that a good story but um I, those are the the obvious things in terms of a, a thematic experience of why I, I love this film just the on the surface but then we get to my love of gangster films which this is obviously a big part of and we get the absolute over-the-topness of this film which is the Nonstop f bombs, the extreme violence in this film. Uh, we get some guy having his eye poked out of his um, his head in a vice in the back of a casino, and after that, he's he's murdered because you know he can be dead now because he's already given up the information. We have um, some guy getting shot because he's holding a sandwich. Also, uh, man, and and we also have like extreme uh, racism in this yes, film yes, that, I... it, that, it, that is hidden under uh, and I won't necessarily use the terms here but man in 1995 they didn't care about using them because they are used religiously in this film I had to pause when Joe Pesci's character like I paused three times because I, I was watching it with my headphones on my computer um, where he's like breaking into a safe and he's like looking at some diamonds and stuff and he's talking about I was like yeah some of these like diamonds have some of the n words in them and I'm just and I'm just like wait what <laughs> and then I yeah. went over like ten seconds again the, and then ten seconds again I'm just like then I put the captions on I was just like yeah. wow I don't think that's that that's emblematic of 1995 I think these characters are complete racist assholes uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm just like wow I've never seen somebody like. Y- like use a racist slur in such a specific and perhaps like in their use of that word factual because it, he was meant to talk about imperfections in the diamond. I'm just like, huh, huh. Well, I do also like when he's talking about them and he's like, he refers to them as, you know, um, sand N words. Yeah. I was just like, what? or, or better known as Arabs. Yeah. <laughs> just like, okay, well, thank you for that. Nikki. They're like, wow. Yep. Yeah. He just went ahead and did that. Yeah, so that's like, right there. And that's just one part of it. And it's just nonstop in the, throughout the entire film. Uh, Joe Pesci is absolutely phenomenal here. Perfectly cast yet again, playing the role that honestly, I don't know if it's him 
playing the role or the role is just centered around what he is as an actor or as a person or whatever, but he is hammering this shit home. And even if it's not every part of it, it's unintentional. And I'm sure some of it was intentional to be funny. This film for me, unfortunately now has just become absolutely hilarious. Every time I watch it, I, I think there are so many lines. There are so many actions that are, that I, the first time watching it didn't think were funny necessarily and now i just sit there and just giggle every time and it's it's maybe not a good thing but i just i just love it it's not a uh i in my opinion it's not a gangster film if joe pesci pesci isn't somewhere fucking it up for everybody else like that just seems like to be the turn for every single good gangster film in my opinion yeah i mean he's he's playing a, a even though it's similar in terms of how angry he gets and him you know calling someone a dumb motherfucker you or something like that. Dumb motherfucker. I don't think he could have gotten away without doing that in this film. However, I do feel like there are quite a bit of differences between his character in this film and his character in Goodfellas, even though some people would argue that there aren't. I, I think there are. And, and uh, you know, that's why I actually prefer this character uh, to uh, Tommy DeVito from Goodfellas, because I just feel like he's so comfortable in this film as the the person he is playing and he embraces that uh character he embraces the character joe pesci does and nikki santoro embraces being a gangster in a place that is just right there for you if you want to be a gangster and it is um oh man i just i just eat it up every time and it's funny because how many times i've seen this three-hour film from start to finish and it's like 20 probably now and yet still every time I love watching it and I can't find a reason to turn it off usually because I know what every character is pretty much going to say. And it's become one of those films where I know what's going to happen in every single scene when I turn it on. But I just like watching the play because I I enjoy seeing what's going to happen next even though I know what it's going to be. And it's just just for me what films should be, which is something that brings you joy, even if it's for a different reason than the first time you watched it. So definitely, definitely. I I could totally agree with that. This was my first time like actually watching this film. So it was quite an experience and I didn't know anything about it. All I knew is that it's, it's one of the crown jewels in like Scorsese's like Ovoir, his, his, his body of work. And I can totally see just right, right from the jump, why that is. Like I thought that the, the use of narration first off within the first 30 minutes of this film i thought god damn like every single line just hits the mark it's just this is really fucking great screenwriting holy shit this is awesome um i i just love the dialogue i i love the 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 context of like the 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 spoken framework of these these people narrating the story and i especially loved like one of the last like jumping forward ahead like you have all these characters that are are narrating across the story and it feels like it actually matters it's not like black mass like like you're you're trying you're trying to like fit in like what all these pieces mean like towards the end like with uh Joe Pesci, Pesci's character Nick was it yeah Nicky like Nicky like when he's in the in the cornfield and stuff and he's like explaining stuff and then his character gets hit with something and it actually interrupts that dialogue. I'm just like, yes, that's amazing. Yes. Because it actually like, it's, it's like how they're narrating their own lives and they're telling it to themselves. We are the stories that we tell to ourselves. And I thought that was awesome, but winding it back to the very beginning and something that is very close and dear to my heart is title sequences. And this one 
for uh, Casino was fucking incredible. I loved it. And you know what? I actually stopped to see who the actual people who designed it was, and it was Elaine and Saul Bass. And if you don't know who Saul Bass is, shame on you. He is one of the most prolific, one of the most influential poster artists, graphic designers in general of the 20th century. The guy direct he, – he, he made the poster for The Shining. He made the poster for The Man with the Golden Arm. He made the poster for El Topo and all this other great shit. Like, the two of them, like his 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 wife and himself, are just a power couple. And just, like, p- taking basically these reflections of, of lights, which are basically the fixture of, like, uh, Las Vegas. Like, say what you will about Paris, but I think that, like the true city of lights is Las Vegas. It just exists as this like tiny little like constellation like that feels like it's nailed to earth. It's that yeah, bright. E- even the the one of the opening scenes of the film is the flyover into the into the darkness exactly. and you see the yeah. the lights in the middle of the dark mountains and Ex- it's just yeah. yeah. Um and and going off of that like with the cinematography like when I was first initially watching this I thought it was like you know this really reminds me of like Chungking Express with like uh um, Christopher Lloyd, like the cinematographer for that, or even uh, what's his name, Benoit Christopher Dub- Doyle, I think. Christopher Doyle, that's his Christopher name. Christopher Lloyd's the uh, the guy from Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Chris- <laughs> yeah, Christopher Doyle, sorry about that. And Benoit Dubel, who was the um, the cinematographer for Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void, both films of which I think that it, that comparison sparked in me because like I was seeing these neon lights being reflected, and neon is very much ever present in those two films but then i found out who actually did do the cinematography and it was robert richardson and i felt almost ashamed for comparing him to somebody else because how can you compare robert richardson like as great as those other two guys are like who could you really compare to robert richardson and like say is like yeah he's like he's kind of like that guy's like no he's just who he is and he's one of the best cinematographers and it shows like with all the tracking shots that are going just the multitude of tracking shots that are going on in this film and they don't feel gratuitous they feel like they're actually like bringing us closer into this world and falling alongside them sort of in a documentary sort of way there's a great one early on in the film of exactly what you're talking about and it's early in the the narration too Mm -hmm. uh it's when um I believe his name's John Nance, who's the guy who brings these suitcases back yeah. and forth with the skim. Mm-hmm. And we see him walking in through uh, where the sort of the uh, like the cash out area mm-hmm. is in the casino. And the holy walk, place of the casino. He walks into the count room. Yeah. He takes the money off the top, skimming it off the top, walks back out, back through the, the cashier's area. Passes by And then Ace. passes by Ace yeah. uh, and uh, Don Rickles mm-hmm. as he's walking out. And he's just another fat fuck walking out of the casino with a suitcase. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I I absolutely loved it. And I actually like looked up some, some stories about um, Richardson's work on Casino. And apparently he's really disappointed by it, but he seems to be like a guy who's compulsively hard on himself. And I can totally understand that. But like I guess that's the engine of his meticulous like de- dedication to craft. But I think that, in my opinion, he fucking knocked it out of the park. It's beautiful. I know they had a very uh, – and Nick, I'm sorry. I know you haven't really even got a chance to talk yet about the about the fest. So I... enraptured by the conversation. Oh, I, okay, sorry. very good. I, I didn't want to cut you off if you had something you wanted yeah. to – but I, I do know that in terms of the actual shooting schedule for this film, I don't want to say it was difficult, but they had a, a very unusual – window in terms of, of a shooting schedule because all of the casino scenes took place 
first. So they had to film every single scene that was involved inside what was supposed to be the Tangiers Casino, which actually was the Riviera, which is uh, recently closed in Las Vegas and is now... Did you? I did. Unfortunately, and I've unbelievably, there. I've actually never went in there uh, before it closed. Actually, it is still it's still standing still because standing. it is going to um, play at least a role in the uh, new Jason Bourne film. That's right. Which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, just how, so because I just yeah, I'm curious because I I want to know what I heard earlier because I think I'm confused. So this was filmed in the Riviera. Yes. So then, what did you mention earlier about the Stardust Hotel? Oh, uh, the Stardust is. What the Tangiers is modeled after, okay. but in real life, it's a so stardust. In, in real life, gotcha. uh, the character Frank Rosenthal, who is who Sam Ace Rothstein is modeled after, uh, worked in the Stardust Hotel, okay. and this is where uh, they were doing the skim. Uh, the the Chicago group, which is the Kansas City group here or whatever, uh, is doing the the skim uh, in that hotel in, in real life. So the Tangiers is based off of the Stardust, yes, and it's filmed in the Riviera. Correct. That's the layers. Okay. Correct. Cool. So uh, the Riviera, they gave them three weeks, I believe, to do the shooting schedule. They gave them a very limited window, and it had to be between like midnight and five a.m. every night that they could want to shoot. That's when they had to shoot there. And so you're already off to a weird start having to shoot at a kind of over the night hour with, you know, real actors actually being involved in the scenes. And then you and a lot of extras too. And a lot, and of, a extras. lot of people would never really like think about that. But when you populate a casino uh, and you have to use extras, like that's a lot of people to manage at those wee hours. When you also have thrown into though, that <clears throat> none of the parts other than the parts that they were actually using to physically shoot the film now the other parts of the casino were allowed to be closed during this makes it it, it had to be challenging like it, yeah. there's no way it wasn't because you're in a living breathing working environment that you are having to completely work around now and the fucking casino throws up on their marquee that robert de niro joe pesci and sharon stone are inside right now so you should come in and look at them because they're here and come look at them now so it it's I could see why Robert Richardson might have been disappointed with at least the casino aspect of this film, because I guarantee that that was something where he was put into a corner probably with multiple parts of it, because there were only so many things you can do, because not only is your space limited, but your time and your options are limited every day, and you're working on a three-week schedule, and unlike with The Revenant, there isn't Argentina to run to to go get more snow. Like, this is what it's going to be, so you have to work with it. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, when you think about the space of a casino, anybody who's ever been in one uh, who's a fan of movies can just, like, it just seems like a mammoth task to take on to not only shoot a film almost predominantly set in a casino, but a three-hour film and one that has so many different scenes. I mean, uh, and how do you, like like what Toussaint was saying as far as like his work here is pretty exemplary. Like, how do you actually make that feel like a continuous breathing thing uh, as far as mixing it up and yet never once uh, feeling, A, inconsistent, or B, I would say, like, uh, inorganic. Like, it was masterfully done, dude. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of this movie as well. I, um, I, I think it's amazing that Martin Scorsese is like, I would say the master of exposition <laughs> because it can, for me, like it can be exhausting to watch this movie mm-hmm. because it is a lot of like, it, it's a, okay. I guess I'll to word it a little bit differently. Like 
if this was handled by anybody like any other director, it would have felt like a a lecture. <laughs> like I'm sitting down and it might be good to look at, but you know, like just the having to listen to how everything works and by both near but the way Scorsese and I think better than the cinematography even, even though it's comparing apples and oranges, is that, that Scorsese is the master editor. Like that's what yeah, he does. Thelma Schumacher, right. who has been his editor forever, right? And so I'm not necessarily taking anything away from her, but yeah. this is clearly his style because he's done it in other films, and mm-hmm. so is she. Uh, but uh, the fact that we can get through these scenes so seamlessly uh, and like forget, like when you mentioned earlier, that each scene probably does have like an average runtime of less than a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's just impeccable, and like it should not work for three hours, and <laughs> and it, it does here. And uh, and one thing I also love about the narration is that I do love the fact that it's predominantly uh, Nikki and Ace because that also thematically ties into this almost unspoken uh, tension between the two of them, as far as like. Uh, if they're not breaking the fourth wall or anything like that, but well, sometimes they do because sometimes, at least Nikki, I remember, does make references like not like you and me, but like when he's uh, talking about gambling yeah. and how Ace gambles differently. So there is sometimes an acknowledgement that they are telling the story to a third party and not just telling it to tell it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love this. Can oh. I can I throw in really uh, yeah. one one of the things that for some reason just always makes me smile, even if it doesn't make me laugh or anything. Is when uh, Nikki has the line when they go back to show uh, Sam Ace Rothstein going back years and uh, back in Kansas City or wherever they were supposed to be, and he was you know, doing his early betting and his early bookmaking and good makeup and good lighting because they actually do make Robert De Niro even 1995 Robert De Niro look younger. Uh, he he says the line back home years ago, and like a second later, the title "Back Home Years Ago" comes on the screen. And it's it's something that like it doesn't feel like too cute, but it also doesn't feel too funny at the same time. Like it, it for some reason just lands for me, and I'm just like, yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Um, and I agree in the sense that like I think the narration is self conscious in a way that makes it engaging and also continues to propel what we know about these characters. But that's not including what they're saying about themselves. Like, we can learn as much as we can about what they say, about what they do, and how the inner workings of the casino. But, like, Toussaint was kind of alluding to it the idea that these are the stories they tell themselves. Mm-hmm. And these are, like, I, I like the idea that we are hearing it from them, and that says a lot about these characters already where we don't even have to meet them, but we already think that like Nikki is the cock of the walk uh, or thinks he is, you know, because of the way he talks compared to the way Ace, which is almost this muted and kind of like, I wouldn't say humble, but uh, somebody who is trying not to stand out. He's about his shit. He's he's about doing his shit and not getting into somebody else's shit. Right. And that's how his narration feels, you know? Um, And I, I just love the dichotomy between those two. And, um, and yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of standout scenes in this movie. I, um, I, I especially actually, just back it up for one second. I love the, uh, which is pretty much part for the chorus for a Scorsese film. It's not even my favorite Scorsese soundtrack, but the, uh, the complete jukebox. Uh, it's excessive. Feel. Yeah, it there is are, excessive. There are a lot of songs in here. And I, I will say that because of that, I wouldn't say every song lands, mm-hmm. but when it does, like the Gimme Shelter montage, um, even the, uh, the, 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 the the Louis Armstrong montage in the beginning, you know, there, uh, or the... Um, 
the baby when he first sees Ginger. You know, there's quite a, I mean, those are so memorable that you forget about all the other ones that are in between all those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like every time one's on, like it is just, that's, that's just a testament to what this film does well, which is that every element is in its place to keep you engaged against all odds. Well, and the interesting thing too about just the, the musical aspect of this film is that they put out a double album for the soundtrack, which I actually own, Shit. which has 40 songs on it, and, and that is still not not yeah. nearly everything. Like there are so many tracks in this in this film, and it's it's only because they couldn't clear them all. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's there. There's so many that time after time, it's amazing to me that every one of these short scenes pretty much has its own song to go along with it. Some of them bleed over into other scenes, but you're changing songs almost every scene, and it just. It just it just works for me. Like it just that this idea of doing something that actually feels quite original, even though Goodfellas follows a similar model to this, it it still feels like there are so many small scenes that that keep going on that just change over from scene to scene. And it's interesting and it actually makes it feel like time does pass this far. Like it, it makes it feel like ten years actually does go by for these characters because we're not having even though it's a absolutely terrific scene the scene where um hank uh or henry or whatever he wants to go by in the film uh henry hill uh is being chased by the helicopter which is a absolutely phenomenal scene in goodfellas Mm -hmm. we don't have those long elongated scenes really here but we have these small scenes that just give us these little snippets that go by and we see how these characters grow into what they became and then how they just crumble into what they ultimately ended up being at the end. And I think it for this film, it works so well because it tells this very thorough story. And that was another thing that I mentioned to you, Nick, when we saw this in the theater last year, is, is something that I feel like you almost can't say it for any other film that I've personally seen, which is that this is a story that somehow... Uh, successfully has three major arcs that it starts at the bottom, goes to the top, and then ends up telling the entire story by the end, which is of the three main characters. And you guys may disagree with that. No, I I totally agree. But I feel like this film fully tells the story of all three of those characters, whatever that story is, whether it be completely major or even more minor, like Ginger, we get the full picture of, of all of them throughout the entire film. And, I feel like it's so hard to do that in any film, and that's part of the reason why this had to be a three-hour film, because you cannot tell the complete story in two and a half hours. Like, I can't even think about what, what, could half, cut? what half hour you would cut out of this film, even if there probably are parts of it you can. I don't know if there's a total half hour I would be able to cut out of this movie. Yeah, I, I think that one of the main points of allure for me and and just and just in general the the entire like crime genre like especially like Scorsese's take on it i think that he is a masterful director especially with this genre in that he's able to tap into the core emotional conceit of like what this genre is supposed to be about and that it's sort of like a modern mirror of a greek tragedy of an ancient greek tragedy where you see like a a great champion esque character who who is brought to the very heights of their ability and they are laid low 
by something that is a, a fundamental crux of like both why they they are able to get so far, but ultimately is the the characteristic that undoes that undoes them. Like Joe Pesci's character, like little Nicky, like he is this guy who's very boisterous. Not to be confused Nicky. with Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah, it's like not to be confused with that movie. I like that movie too, but whatever. Um, yeah, there, there is one. I How just about that? I just showed my hand. Sorry. Um, you just showed a lot more than that. Oh, whatever, dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> little Nikki uh, is is this guy who's very boisterous, who's very shut up. Anyway, who's who's very much like he very much relies on violence. He very much relies on being the little guy in the fight. I think it's more of a Napoleon esque sort of like mentality mm-hmm. where he has to like leap up and and just like punch every guy in the face. If somebody like comes at him like with with a punch, he gets out a knife. If somebody gets a knife, he comes with a gun. If somebody gets with a gun, you better kill his ass because he will not stop until he has ended you. Yeah, and me th- and him share more than just our names. <laughs> okay, Nick. Remind me to never piss you off. I will get your copy of, of World on a Wire back to you. I promise, buddy. Please do. I will. I will. I promise. Um, Is this your pen? Anyway. Um, <laughs> It, it, it ultimately undoes him, and like an ace, like uh, Robert De Niro's character, like I knew from the jump that that guy was fucked as soon as he saw Ginger across the uh, across the room because I knew this guy was going to fall in love with this girl, and he should not have yeah, fallen in love with that girl. But see, here's here's the real thing though about Ace, and, and the, the interesting part about his character for me is that I, I feel like it's hard to really get into the love aspect of their relationship because they. It almost feels like, in this is another Morgan Scorsese film that follows a somewhat similar gangster model, which is The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. where Leonardo DiCaprio almost becomes infatuated with Margot Robbie's. And it's not so much that I feel like he desperately loves her. Uh, Sam Rothstein is infatuated by who Ginger is as a, as a person. Like, she is this above life person, which he believes himself and to be. She's the thing he can't bet on. Correct. And, and what's, what's really, really toxic about so that. So smart. What, what's toxic about that is that it actually does kind of like. It touches home and in, in, into into real life topics about that, and that you cannot. The worst thing that you can you can do to somebody in, in a relationship is to either position them as something lower than you or something above you. To divorce always lower. To no to divorce them of of the ability of of human fallibility is toxic. It creates a a very in indentured dynamic that you feel like you have to serve them and there, there's this this one scene when they're together and like he proposes to her and when she tells him it's like you know it's like i just don't love you that way and i'm just like i don't feel that way it's like because you know that she's in love with like this lester diem fuck who i she's, who, she's not in love with him though she, that's the no. thing she's in lust with she, him she's no she's, she's not she is dependent um, emotionally dependent on him i was gonna say she's unfortunately someone who is probably is he, he's a pimp and she was a hooker. Yeah. So she has been well, and yeah. and unfortunately I've read the book also so I know more about the the story yeah. so you you get, you get more into yeah. in terms of the, the psyche of it but and also canon in the movie itself. Not necessarily. Well, I'm just saying what's well, no, but but in 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 the film I feel like she always ends up going back to him because he has this weird bizarre power over her yeah. which is pretty evident especially in the scene where she's like bawling her eyes out and crying to him on her wedding day and he's 
sniffing coke and getting some girl to blow him and he's yeah. just like oh yeah you know this is best for you and for for us in the situation you should get the money what yeah uh, but but she she never loved him he never loved her i'm talking about ace and ginger right now and they have this really bizarre relationship where they have become married we have this like terrible action where he is forcing her to have a baby mm-hmm. to hedge his bets before they get married which yeah. is way more fucked up than a prenup um <laughs> and it just it, it it just it just never works because if they just would have gotten divorced like things could have been better but ace is just so obsessed with mm-hmm. with control in every aspect of his life and, and man that is Testing those dice. That, that is just not how to have. That that's just not how that, to have a healthy marriage. That's not well, how. Speak for that's yourself. How, that's not how <laughs> life works. And, and just returning to that scene where it's just like you know, like I'm just not that kind of person. I don't love you. And he's trying to make all these concessions. He's like, well, maybe in time you'll learn to love me and stuff like that. It's like it just makes me think about like this really, this really thoughtful quote. I can't even remember the source of it, but it's like when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. It's like if they're if they're the type of person who like plays themselves up, then learn to like read between the lines of what they are actually telling you about themselves. And I just feel like he wasn't for for all the the, the matter that he was able to scope at all these people and he was able to see their tells and be able to see how they were working a room, whether or not they were they were drunk, if they were high on coke, if their if their girlfriend was about to have a baby. He was able to to discern all these 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 like intuitive little like nuances of people, but he wasn't able to see what was right in front of him because he wanted so desperately to love this person, to have this person in his life. Here's the thing though. And it's another point I have on this where I actually slightly disagree with you. Like I feel like he sees exactly what ginger is on candy. Well, in, in a way he also like the moment where he becomes infatuated with her is because she's stealing from this guy who she's hustling over. And then she throws all his chips in the air, which for some reason, for someone who wants things to be calm and quiet in his casino, he thinks is the greatest thing ever. Who wouldn't want to be with Ginger. She was one of the most respected hustlers on the strip, (laughs) but he thinks he can change her throughout the film, which is the more, the, the, the more concerning thing about his character. Uh, I don't know if he thinks he can change her so much as he he totally kidding. He totally tries to change her. He he totally, I'm saying, I don't think he thinks he can change her because why would he marry her? Then he has this, this whole, because he's an idiot. If if they not change her, then to rein her in, but he has this, this whole sort of view that's expressed throughout the film of, of he he wants her to go away from Lester. He wants her to be, to be his property. When you said change her, I guess I was thinking of something else, which is that like, to change her in a completely different person. He likes who she is. She just he just wants her to cut off everything that makes her who she is. The way she is. Well, no, no, unique from him, mm-hmm. which is to cut ties with Lester and to you know whatever. Like he thinks that if all he can, if all he has to do is provide for her, and that will make her even more, I would say, attractive to him because then she won't need Lester. She won't need to do this hustling, so to speak. Yeah. But like he's is, I think somewhat in love with that whatever girl that threw up those chips and that kind of thing like he can't explain it cause, like you often can't obviously yeah. when love hits the, but the girl it, just threw his world up in the air and it, just like all t- tumbled down to the floor but this sounds like a 
joke, and <laughs> you guys are going to laugh, but there is a love story in this movie, and yeah. that is actually not between Ace and Ginger, but mm-hmm. between Ace and Nikki. And yeah. I, I don't mean an actual homosexual love no, story. No, I, I get what you're saying, that. The, that is what actual, like, like a love story as far as, like, the arc, because here he, like, it's completely forgiving and the same way he is with i would say with ginger but just on a much more impactful scale for yeah. me uh but like his, his his route to forgiveness so easily especially in the beginning for all of nikki's uh i would say behavior that he doesn't exactly agree with and how he really can't tell him what to do and whatnot the same way a lot of people can enter a relationship and you know feel like oh i wish certain things were different but i'm also or Another prime example of what you're talking about right now, Nick, is where Nikki finds out about Ace's true feelings from another conversation that happened with another person, and also uh, the the, the funny use of this in this film, but their spouses talk on the phone, and then they sneak on the phone when they're done talking, (laughs) and it's for a different purpose in this film because the FBI is listening in, Mm -hmm. but it's the the way it's used in here, just the the visual of it is is pretty great. The mirror image of, like, these, like, two little schoolgirls that get together (laughs) to talk about their business, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, like, I'm being cheeky, and yet I'm also thinking that I'm not, I'm not... It's like eight year olds like like shouting across like their their respective like front lawns from their yeah. windows like trying to like hey do you want to go like play ba- baseball or something also I got this huge pound of coke <laughs> and and more so than ginger even though it's certainly prevalent in his relationship with uh, ginger like the the fact that Ace allows this downfall to happen of Nikki's behavior and whatnot uh, and his antics is completely in line with the psychology behind like when you love somebody who has some kind of like addiction or somebody who you think is like because you have that rose-colored view of them whereas I don't know that I would say Ace ever has as high of opinion of Ginger than he does of Nikki. You know what I mean? Like I especially as far as like how he respects them both as human beings. Well, Ace and Nikki actually have a somewhat uh, real relationship prior to Ace's rise to prominence. And right. same with Nikki, too, where Ace is at his peak when he meets Ginger. And yes, he... and it's like, would she even pay him any mind outside mm-hmm. of that context, you mm-hmm. know, like before he went to Vegas? Obviously, he was a pretty, I think, wealthy person and whatnot, but like, if he wasn't that person running that casino, would somebody who looks like Robert De Niro, you know, or like really call her attention compared to probably all the other guys that would be lining up to do the same, who probably has the same, almost the same amount of money and whatnot. Well, and another thing too, is that you have to think about it as well from Ginger's perspective, because is she, she's obviously not going into it for love. She's not going, she's going in for security and for money. Yes. Yep. I mean that, that like one more scene, than security. Even, yeah. Like, yeah. Like the scene where she's looking at all of the jewelry. And that's actually one of the like scariest scenes of the film for me. When she's showing their, you know, two-year-old child or whatever, look at all of this jewelry. Daddy gave it to me because he loves me. It's like, oh my god, you are fucking that kid already. She's only two. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, if they man. if they don't give you jewelry, they don't they don't love you. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess if we if we want to come to it to a close, talking about casino, did, I, did, did I do you... want to mention like like bit characters that I really enjoyed. Okay. okay. So I really enjoyed uh, James Wood's turn as Lester. Yeah. I thought that he was just like the slimiest, just absolute like 
he's just a slime ball. I, I, I hate that guy so much. And I think that it speaks to his ability to act that he was able to convey such a, uh, a reprehensible character. Originally in the script, he was supposed to be uh, dropped into a hole in the desert and okay. shot by Nikki. Oh, damn. I wish I'd seen that scene. Uh, it wasn't in the film. So I know. I, I wish. Um, they changed it, obviously, for, for some reasons. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing about Lester Diamonds, and I can't remember his character, his real name in real life. Mm. But he and Ginger have, have children in real life. Oh. Had, had children in real life. Had two kids, which obviously would <laughs> change the dynamic with them in, mm. in the film if that was included. It so. would change it, and yet also, I'm not saying I wouldn't want it to happen or like want it to be different in the film, but like I feel like that actually makes sense for the relationship we are seeing as far as p- partly just explaining the intensity of which she's drawn back to him. Like, mm-hmm. like if there are kids involved, like it would just make even more sense. Yeah. But I also don't think that this film needs even more characters. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, I, I think it, it it sort of makes it a more interesting thematic experience of mm-hmm. it would be obvious of why she keeps going back to Lester because right. they have children. I was yeah. going to say, without the kids, it does, I would say, illuminate the kind of vicious cycle of... Uh, Unrequited attraction that mm. that's going from that's being passed down from Ace to her to her to uh, Lester to Lester to cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> he loves cocaine. Yeah. Um, Lady Coke don't love him back. Yep, uh, I really enjoyed Don Rinkles as Billy Sherbert. Don, I, Rickles. Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Wow. Yeah. Ageist piece of shit. I'm so, whoa! I didn't mean like that. I thought I just that's the way that Don I, Catheter. Oh, damn, dude! I think you went farther than I did. Okay. Maybe. Um, yeah, Don Rickles is great here. I mean, he's just—he's my favorite part of this movie. And I know that sounds <laughs> weird to say because he's not. Like a like I would say pivotal character. pivotal character in like the narrative, yeah. but what he does with like barely like like he has a presence that he, he just completely nails, and he's just a perfect casting choice. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, uh, but just I don't know. Just every these time mecha- I these mechanical problems, you know, better here than up there. Yeah. <laughs> but like that, but just every time <laughs> he's standing behind Ace, like that. Like it literally makes those shots and those scenes better for him just standing there, which not every other kind of, which not every actor could bring to such a role. Yeah, and it's 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 his weird like demeanor and, and tone of his voice that just it works so well for what his role is in, the, in this film, and also too somehow he 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 manages to have a like frowny, angry looking demeanor on his face when he is standing behind Ace, which is which is great because usually I think of Don Rickles of him. Like screaming and smiling somehow, and yeah. and he, he pulls it off in this movie, and it feels so bad when he gets beaten with that telephone by Nikki. I was yeah. like, no, it's I Don know. Rickles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although it, it is weird to see like that the end of his arc is him uh, with a witch casting a spell on him and him turning into a Mister Potato Head. Like, <laughs> I felt like that was a little shoehorned in, to be honest. Okay, Nick. Um, my my last person that I wanted to mention was uh, Frank Vincent as Frank Marino. Yeah. I really enjoyed him. The one who gets the random narration in the uh, yeah late in the film. Isn't he also the one that uh, that does little Nicky in with the uh, with the baseball bat from behind? Yeah, yeah changes uh, changes teams and beats the shit out of him and uh, buries him and his brother alive. Apparently, uh, between Frank Vincent and Joe Pesci, they they just keep on like trading off ass whoopings. 
across the entirety of Scorsese's like entire like uh, filmography, and I think that's fucking fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really end very well for Frank Vincent on The Sopranos either. If I if I can recall, <laughs> yeah. which one is he on The Sopranos? He's like the I, I always forget his name. He's the main villain in the final uh, couple seasons of oh, The Sopranos. Yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, God damn it! I don't know his oh, name. God it's one of my, it's one of my damn it. favorite shows, but yeah, uh, yes, I do know who you're talking about. It's been a while. Yes, yeah, it's 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 a tough one. Break out the smartphones. The problem it's is a, they all have the same goddamn name. It's I know. Frankie Tony. It's not Polly Walnuts. Somebody else. <laughs> Walnuts. Wait, is it Frank Leotardo? Yes. Yes, That's I it. did it without looking. Yeah. Look at you. That's why I was confused because it is Frank. Frank. So, Frank. Yes. Frank. But yeah, Frank Leotardo. He looks like Frank. Yeah. yeah. Say say bye bye to grandpa. <laughs> oh, fuck. I don't even I don't even know the context of that and it's Oh, it's, re- oh, it's, it's sounds, wonderful. It sounds real fucking sinister. Oh, it's wonderful. Say goodbye to grandpa. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't end well for him. Ooh. And aren't they in like a like a in a gas station or something like Ooh. that? Yeah. <laughs> It's been a while. Mm. I rewatch all the early seasons, and I forget to kind of go back to the. <laughs> I don't make it to the ending. Well, I, I watched the ending. <laughs> yeah. but as far as the episodes, I choose to rewatch. I yeah. saw it. It was a, one of the better parts of the finale of the Sopranos. I loved it. Uh, so yeah, I, I have quite a few final thoughts. If you guys want to want to give out yours before we uh, call it a day on Casino, I thought this film was was terrific. I'm so glad that I. I had the opportunity to watch it, let alone talk about it on the podcast. Um, I, it, 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 I'm, I'm still trying to process how it falls within my favorites of uh, Scorsese's work, but I think that's definitely like one of his best. Um, there's one thing that kind of uh, that kind of irks me, and it's going to be kind of a controversial opinion. It's about the ending, mm-hmm. um, just about how abrupt it is and how low key it is. Like I'm used to like, I'm, I'm used to like like the story of. Like the the mighty being laid low and kind of like being humbled, and that's really what what the the tone of like almost all of Scorsese over of like like gangster films are is like these these once great gangsters that are, that are either have to go into witness protection or have to like start from the bottom again. And like Robert De Niro's last line is like, and it's like, yeah, I'm just ended up where I was, and that's that. And he's just like staring off into the distance, and then it fades. And I was just like, huh. I had to like go back and like watch that again. I'm just like I'm not sure how I felt about that, but like I think that in time it will grow on me. But like it just didn't like it it, it didn't land as well with me as as before. Like it it it, really, it, really, it was really more of the cap off of like talking about like what his recent flashback was like. This is the end of the era of the Tangiers, where the corporations moved in, and before like people knew like what your your drink of choice was and now it's like going to the fucking airport and I'm just like it almost kind of makes me even though I I'm not a gambler I'm not even like interested in like the whole Vegas scene I've been there before it's cool but it's like I wouldn't live there uh or gamble there for that matter um like it, 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 it what would it, you do there <laughs> I I went there with my dad and we like went sightseeing and shit like that it was cool yeah. um like I it almost makes me yearn for that era just simply because I was able to experience it vicariously through Ace and like the rest of the characters in this film. And I was like, it really does suck to to see something that was so pristine to you being tarnished by, by outside forces. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the very ending of the film, I mean, there are parts of the ending that even for me as someone who obviously absolutely loves loves this film, um, 
I still can't necessarily figure it out. And most people, I don't think really can. Like on a, an emotional tone? No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about a very specific part of the of the ending of the film, uh-huh. uh, of the last like 10 minutes of it. Okay. And that is when we see Sharon Stone's ultimate death, and we have the very unusual, like, over-the-top her, like, being scared of someone either, A, raping her or mm. murdering her, of her being like, oh, no, 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 no! Yeah. And then the next thing we see is her walking under the hall and then dying, which leads you to believe that she was... Either a raped mm. and or murdered. They gave her a hot dose, which Wait, I figured which, was which they did. But it, it it makes it that she was not sitting there and just enjoying taking heroin when mm-hmm. she was murdered for the most part, or she was raped. That is very weird. It's a very unusual addition to the film that that it was kind of just like thrown in there. It, it doesn't it's, it's, quite fit with does, the rest does, of the does, does Jigsaw like fit in like a little bit of like slow acting poison into her cocaine and but just it, like that's why she died? The, the rest of the that montage of all the people getting killed, it actually makes sense of how things really went in the, during mm-hmm. that time of Yes, the mob bosses would like to not go to prison, so if there are no witnesses, there will be no prison, possibly. That, that gave me chills when they were going around the room. It was like, well, what about this uh, this one guy? It's like, I trust him. It's like, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a Marine. It's like, I totally get him. Like, there were like four people that testi- testified to him, and there was just one guy who was just like, no, why take a chance? I was like, Does, god damn. doesn't dude. really matter if Ganji says it. God he, damn. The only one whose opinion really matters. Yeah. And I love his his ending, which is so, so uh, how I always feel about mm-hmm. people in, in leadership and gangster. That's just how I feel about it. It's yeah. almost like, you guys are going to do it, yeah. but... That's, that's just kind of... It, you know, it's not me Yeah, I'm not that. trying to have... A, I have an iron fist, but you know, you know who, who puts... Who puts food on your plate? So you're gonna fall through with what I want. But but the very ending of the film, though, I mean, it just it just ends because that's just the way that the story was at the time. Like Life goes on. Like Frank Rosenthal was living in Florida, not San Diego, and he just was living there, doing exactly what Sam is doing at the end of this film. And Shit. in 1995, that's what he was doing. Mm. He was. Picking winners and sitting there wearing Harry Carey glasses and looking at <laughs> TVs that were in walls in a way different way than they are now. And he's just, just living out the rest of his life because the the part of his life that was worth telling his story about is now over. And he's just going to spend the rest of his days sitting there looking at horse racing. So, yeah. I like that. There's the... the, the... The notion of a very spectacular period of your life that is worthy of telling a story and that it does not demand a sequel. So, so many people would try to like expand upon that as like, well, they keep on pulling me back in. It's like, no, this is where it ends. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's true to life, I think. If they so. made a casino sequel, which they won't, but yeah. I have a spectacular title, which is you spell out the word casino, but you take the last. N and O, and you kind of put like a dash between cassette and I mean, you put a dot and put a two after, so it's like cassette number two. Why not just like, why not stop? Why stop there? Why don't you just like put a dash in between? Stop there because it's fucking gold. Between A and S and be like, ka, sin, no. So moving on to Nick and his feelings (laughs) about uh, this film, I I know you are a fan, even if it's not like on your all time favorite list, but. Let's hear your final thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I am a fan. I um, I do admit that I can't watch it too frequently, yeah. and that's because it's not one of my all-time favorites, because yeah, yeah. if I do watch it too close together, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I can get exhausted by it because it's so much exposition. And I don't mean that as an insult, but because it's not my all-time favorite movie or one of them, 
I, you know, if I'm not in the right mood, it feels like a chore it, because I have to keep up with it, so to speak. Because I think what it has to say is worth listening to, but it is rapid fire. You know, are you paying attention? Uh, having said that, like like I said earlier, I think Scorsese is like the master of exposition. You know, I, I almost want to call it sex position, but uh, technically that coined uh, that term's already been coined because of uh, sex scenes from Game of Thrones that move the plot forward, so that they call them sex position scenes. Anyway. Uh, but I, I am a fan of this and I, and I, I was only half joking earlier when I say that this is a love story, but it's between Ace and Nikki because I genuinely think that the relationship is the best part of this movie. And I think everything that surrounds it is not quite as well defined, or I would say is quite as resonant between what happens between them because, uh, like, like we were kind of alluding to, like, not, I think everything with Ginger is completely 100% as far as whether it might make sense as like, like her destiny is a little thrown off uh, mm-hmm. there and whatnot. But like every scene between De Niro and Pesci in this movie is so good that it overcomes scenes that I, that don't star them that I'm not completely feeling. And I think that like, I actually do prefer this to Goodfellas, but I've only seen Goodfellas once. So one day I'm going to rewatch it and maybe I'll change that opinion. Who knows? Karen. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like this, like Goodfellas, I will say this much about what I like about this more than Goodfellas, which is that I do think Joe Pesci, like, that was his warm-up role to play Nicky Santoro. Mm-hmm. Like, whether you like one movie better than the other, I feel like this is the role he was born to play, even if he had already played a, I would say, variation of it before. Um, and yeah, I just think it's so, uh, it's edited beautifully. Like the, Like I said earlier, like, this movie shouldn't work, I think. Like, like it's, this would just be a behemoth of a script that, like, if you give to a lot of directors, it would be like, uh, so let's just cut half of this out, and then that would just ruin it. But, like, he tackled it through and through, and he found a way to tell this story. And while I don't personally think it needs to be three hours, um, I he makes it okay <laughs> that it is. And, I, and I'm not, you know, it's not like when I'm watching The Revenant, which feels like a five-hour movie, even <laughs> though it's only two and a half whereas like this is a three-hour movie that I, I i don't genuinely check my watch or anything like that and yeah it's just uh i do agree that there's some good dark comedy in it and some of these lines are great uh and yeah i i uh I, i'm a fan it's yeah. like uh it, yeah good that, that's it i'm just gonna end right there boom i liked it put a bookmark in it all right put a bookmark in it i um uh, there's you know not that much more to say for me at casino you know even I, I, again there's not this like grand personal meeting for me with casino i just and it doesn't need to be it just is a great gangster film that oh, yeah. for some reason has kept me coming back time and time again and it it's cemented itself as being my favorite film just because I enjoy watching it every single time and not even for the same reason every time. I I love the characters. I love all of the characters there are in this film. Like every single one for me lands and it's it their their importance is can you know attributed to their their scenes that they are in and then they are are away and even though characters can be important when they're not on screen 
they they still are in the scene perfectly amount for me that they should be and then they are no longer in the scene anymore and it, it just works so well as a a film where so many people are coming and going throughout the story and yet the story revolves around the two main characters and obviously ginger as well as she's obviously a main character too but the story about ace and and nikki is so important and it's just just so many scenes and so many small little moments like the the moment when they they are talking about the mob bosses for the first time and they're all sitting around a a table in a dark room with all the lights on them and they're all just sitting there it eating. looks like the last supper almost yeah they're almost sitting there eating their pasta in this like weird sort of moment where they're just talking about their business or whatever. And then all of a sudden it, it like almost as someone is snapping their fingers, they all turn and look at the camera at the same time. And I just, just absolutely love that. And there are so many moments like that. And so many great for me things to look back on this film, both from a cinematography standpoint, but just also from a, a, a choice to have that be part of your film standpoint. Like the, the moment where we go from, the great and actually uh, and not necessarily for a, a bad reason because it's whatever it's it's such a small part of the film but the the definitely most parodied uh thing from this film is the scene of the the car driving by ace's sunglasses which we've seen in multiple other things of media over time and then we have that great scene where they're arguing and then we have the um uh, the uh, bizarre transition from that scene to the 1980s and starting off with the crack the whip song as they're going into the, to the nightclub and it's you just must whip it. Yeah. And Ace is wearing this just awful uh, coat uh, going in there. Also, by the way, he had over 120 different outfits that he, he wore throughout this. Film. And he has them all. And he has that great part in the, uh, the scene where uh Webb comes into his office and he has to uh, have the secretary keep him out there so he could put his pants on, uh, which is just great, too. And I love his office, too, because his office was directly modeled after what Frank Rosenthal's office is. Mm -hmm. If you look at photos of his office, which you can find, um, it's it's like the exact same things are in the exact places. Even the big no sign that's over in the corner is there. It's just awesome. No, It's awesome. And it's just it's just such a fun ride every single time. And for someone like me who loves gangster films, loves Goodfellas and the first two Godfather films, this is like the the, the pinnacle of what I want a gangster film to be. I want it to entertain me. I want there to be violent action throughout. I want this to be gritty. I don't want it to be. I, I, I don't want it to be politically correct. I, I want it to be a gruesome gnarly story about gangsters and and what what las vegas in its prime was and that's like the the last thing i want to mention about this film is that las vegas is one of my favorite places ever like i love going there it's without a doubt my favorite vacation spot i always have a a place in my heart for it because I, i love everything that Las Vegas represents for some reason, even though it is not a, 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 a not a good place. No, it's not a place you should, it should strive to want to, you know, embody your life, but it is for what it is supposed to be for people. It is so great because it is an escape from the everyday. And it is a place where you can go and embrace all of the things that not aren't necessarily great about, being a person and, and it's okay to do them within some reason. Like yeah. you shouldn't go out there, shoot people and 
get 10 hookers and get a whole bag of Coke and whatever. I mean, people are known to do that, though, in Las Vegas. They, it's happened. Yeah. Uh, it's not as bad as... It, birthday it, was off the hook. <laughs> I mean, it's not as bad as Florida, but, you know, it's like it's, it's, still, it's still Las Vegas. But you can have fun and feel like you're doing whatever you want out there. And, and there, there are really... There are limits to what you can do, but there there are it's called less, law. Yeah, well, yeah, but there are <laughs> the less, limits called law. There are less limits to what you can do, but it's a much different place now, as the end of this film alludes to, than it was at this time. And I love this time period of Las Vegas. As someone who's who's tried to study the history of Las Vegas, mm-hmm. going all the way back to it being just a, in the middle of the desert, into to Ben Bugsy Siegel and opening the Flamingo and the transformation from this shitty little place in the middle of the desert shanty to, town to the incredible days of um, taking people to the nuclear test sites and, and sitting them in, in these like these manufactured theaters to watch the nuclear tests and, and bringing sack lunches for people and, and giving them uh, uh, sunglasses to protect their eyes from, from anything happening to their eyes and not even fucking thinking about it. And this, this is the history of what this city is is yeah. has gone through this to to where it is now but but th- this time where the mafia was firmly involved in Las Vegas and it was really the wild west for for a, a lot of people thinking it but but just the the interesting part of where it starts which is in the late 60s into the early 80s and in this incredible transformation from a a small town into a major metropolis city is just fascinating for me and it it just shows what a a a great i I would say transition from smaller city to large city happens throughout the history of the united states like a a lot of transitions have involved crime whether it be in the wild west when that was uh you know, transitioning from being middle of nowhere to being major cities areas, or being New York, we see it in Gangs of New York. Is mm-hmm. it another Martin Scorsese example of these these terrible transitions from not necessarily everything in Casino was terrible in that time period, but we we see these transitions that are like tough times and in and not the best people are in charge and and a lot of things. Um, have to be learned in terms of uh, learning about what things can and can't be. And it just is such a great time period. And it's just perfectly encapsulated in this film that is, it's funny. It's, it's creepy. It's scary. It's course interesting. It's just so many different things that I just can't even put a grasp on what exactly it is every time, but I love it. I, it's a different film for me every time I sit down and watch it. And um, I'll never get tired of it because I love Casino and uh, it's just an, an all-time classic for me. And I'm glad it's my favorite film of all time because, man, it's just an awesome ride. Something you you just said really kind of like sparked um, an understanding and a long view of like Scorsese's entire body of work in that it's almost like a a sort of fictitious documentation of how vice is inextricable from that of the birth and the current existence of the American dream that people that there, that you have, have these people who have basically taken on like this, 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 this mantle of trying to build their lives through the work that they do outside of the system of law. 
and that they're really trying to just like have their own pursuit of happiness. Like these people who like like in gangs in New York, the the people who helped to build New York were were the gangs of New York. The people who helped to make uh like Las Vegas what it is, like with the nuclear test sites. I didn't even know about that. That's fucking fascinating. Yeah. Um it, it, you can find documentaries on it yeah. too and it's it's pretty incredible that like that that people would go there yeah. and stay so they could go out during uh the, the time of that and it would be an entire event they'd have busloads of people going out to these manufactured small theaters and they'd and, sit there with their packed lunches that they would provide them and who's gonna this... fucking stop them from having a good time because it's just in the middle of the fucking desert yeah right? and obviously they didn't give a fuck about yeah. radiation or anything so yeah they know. didn't know about that shit they <laughs> I, didn't I, know about it but it's it's a something yeah um but yeah it's like it's it's really fascinating just like looking at scorsese's work work as that and just like learning more about las vegas like from you in that way so i feel like like even though you say that there's, there's not really a personal like part of this i i definitely sense a personal like investment in, in your love of las vegas with that so that yeah definitely is true now that i'm i'm thinking about it because yeah. I, I do love and i love the history of it and this film is involved with that so mm-hmm. i i guess that my personal thing for this movie. I was yeah. actually like, I, like when we were talking about like the February favorites originally, and you were saying like originally how like you didn't have like quite the personal angle or whatever. I was going to like throw that out there as far as like because I know how much you love Las Vegas and have studied or whatever. But then I was, I I thought you were going to bring it up, and you did right at the. Final right hour. at the very end, well, but, I, but hey, I didn't want to like put words in your mouth. No, as no, to... and and, for, and it, it's it's definitely in a in a different way. I, I feel like because this is a film that goes through a, the time period of Las Vegas that I'm most interested in, right. and it, it it tells the story in a absolutely perfect way for me to receive it. So, um, and I, I do love Las Vegas, and I think my love and interest of Las Vegas was aided by this film. Like it, it made me even more interested than I already was. So it's, it, it definitely goes hand in hand, but um, yeah, no, definitely is a, a, a personal thing about it. So good. Yep. Yep. Um, well, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, our February favorites. This was, this was fun. And I think maybe next year, next February, well, we can still do February favorites, but in, in a different way. I was going to say, we could do kind of the same thing. It just wouldn't be, at least for me and Alec, because we've kind of like ranked ours and whatnot. Like it wouldn't be our number ones, but there's a film that we basically want to force the other two people uh, to watch. Our mm-hmm. February second favorites, yeah, yeah, <laughs> fine with that. Yeah, no, I've I've got a whole list of fifty films, Nick. I know you have a list of like hundred or something like that. So it's it's a hundred and it's uh, it's growing to two hundred <laughs> slowly but surely. <laughs> I've debated. Making mine larger, but we'll see. I cannot wait to make you guys watch Showgirls next year. Oh, for oh, God's yeah. sakes, get out of here. I'm so cool yeah, with that. If you have uh, a It's a fog- Vegas movie. Why don't you like it? Well, <laughs> we'll it, talk about that soon. It's, it's a different way, for sure. Uh, if you out there have a, a, a feeling on, a, on any film that is your favorite and you want to share what your favorite film is and kind of a description about why it is and you know, obviously not going to go as in-depth as we did, but just, you know couple graphs about what you love about films you can always send that along to us at film tank show at gmail.com uh, or you can find us on facebook twitter or instagram too at film tank show on our next episode we're going to uh move out of february and into march which is you know ripe for horror season right uh as we are talking about a, a horror film that's got a lot of attention uh from critics. some would say we're about to enter march madness <laughs> because of like 
Yeah. Don't respond to that. Yeah. But, and then the, the, uh, the uh, Fuck you guys. college basketball tournament. Wow. They got so angry. Ripped off his headphones. Yeah. Holy shit. Got yeah. real. In a very undramatic way because I wear hearing aids. <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. It's like now, like, you can't really hang up the phone on people anymore. You're just like, no. Got to press that, yeah. that touch screen really hard. Yeah, it's yeah. really not going to have the same effect. Nah. But uh, The Witch... Is the film we're going to be talking about. It's gotten quite a bit of attention from critics and from horror movie lovers. Would thou like to live deliciously? That was a line in the film that uh, we'll talk more about. And we're going to have a new guest. Yes. Uh, Which, please. Her name. Uh, it seems to be a, it seems to be a theme. Uh, of, of us having female guests, which is which is okay because yeah. it's it's just guys sitting around usually. So to, to uh, borrow a phrase from the show Flight of the Concords, too many dicks on the dance floor. <laughs> Her name is Jessica Singer, and she is a, uh, a horror advocate, and she is very much an expert. So good. Well, I'm sure she will find my opinions very entertaining. <laughs> oh, then yes, she will. <laughs> Uh, so if you've seen The Witch, too, and you also want to give out your opinion on that film, we can hopefully uh, have it in time if you want to send it in for next week's episode. And again, uh, that's at FilmTankShow at gmail.com. And all of our episodes can be found on FilmTankShow.com or on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another thing really quickly before we uh, sign off from this episode, in addition to talking about The Witch on next week's episode, we'll also be reviewing the Oscars ceremony. Uh, which is taking place over this coming weekend. So it will have occurred by the time we uh, record our next episode so we can give our thoughts on The Revenant sweeping all of its 12 categories. And oh, winning. boy. Just so I that I'm familiar, wait. the Oscars, is that the award ceremony where um, like all the categories are dedicated to Oscar Isaac? Like, what's the best Oscar Isaac costume? Yeah. What's the best Oscar Isaac performance yeah. in a Star Wars movie? Someday which... he's going to win an Oscar, and it's going to be great. It will be. Yeah. Because be... he's just a great actor. It'll be for the uh, for the love scene in episode eight between him and uh, John Boyega. Yeah, totally. I'm done with that. Yeah, I actually am too. But me yeah. too. We'll see if they go there. Yeah. Uh, so um, <laughs> he was genuine in that one interview. Yeah. Where, like, uh, I think John Boyega was a little more hesitant to yeah. uh, go straight into that territory. Aww. But, uh, <laughs> no, else is probably a little hesitant for that Disney. Disney. Oh, well. But Frozen was like a analogy for closeted homosexuality. Sure. Sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. And they had the gay character in that oh, one scene where. You, you mean Olaf? No, I didn't they, see the movie, so forgive me. I mean, I kind of agree that it. I feel like, but I don't think it was Disney. Like from a top down, I think it might have just been like a storyboard am, animator getting away with it, so to speak. But there, there is a scene in Frozen in which a character who is a male character, middle aged or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, refers to his family, and when he points and the camera goes over, it's a, another male man with like more children. Aww. So it's yeah. kind of like, you it's, know. It's, it's, it's more just, ambiguous than Nick I'm, makes it out to yeah. me. I, I mean, I just explained what happened. I didn't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, is that a man or a woman? Oh, it's clearly no, a man. It is, but in terms of its meaning, I, I feel like you are saying it's definitely that, and I felt like it was not necessarily... I think it's implicit. Okay. That there's a difference between explicit and implicit, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know what else they would, like... As far as, because Disney and people who make Disney movies, and I don't know why we're talking about this now, but... Um, <laughs> because Casino, that's why. They are meticulous and they make deliberate decisions. There's only really one meaning for making that deliberate decision. Okay. Yeah. Cool. 
Mm. All right. Well, uh, we will not be talking about Frozen next yeah. week, but we and will that's be. That's good because it's overrated. It is. Agreed 100%. See, a much better Just film. Let it go, like, America. Tangled. Yeah, tangled. I agree. Much better film. Which I, yeah. Yep. I agree. So, The Witch on episode 53 coming at you next week. Thank you very much for listening from Nick Cheney, Tucson Egan, and myself, Alex Eekman. Uh We will catch up with you next time. <laughs> We'll